may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden, exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond, you may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by Blood. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Welcome to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios here in beautiful northwest Pennsylvania. We broadcast live each and every weeknight, Monday through Friday, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. That's our flagship station, network, uh, flagship network, the Global Star Radio Network. We're also simulcast on Blog Talk Radio. And, of course, you can watch us live on our official YouTube channel. Just go to HagmanandHagman.com. That's HagmanandHagman.com. And there you'll find each link to uh, to our audio video venues right there. And uh, we've got two two different websites, HagmanandHagman.com and HagmanReport.com. I want to thank everyone for joining us. Uh, we had a great, uh, great week of shows. Uh, I want to remind people that um, Eric the Tech is off until Tuesday, actually. Uh, taking some time off, well deserved, I might, I might add. Uh, sitting in for Eric the Tech is my stepson, Josh. Now, Josh is um, an unreformed, unreformed um, Catholic, and uh, we we and Josh is is one of the guy, one of those guys where he looks at us and says, you know, you're all crazy. You all you you know you Joe you're crazy, you're nuts. That's what he's that's what he says. So we're gonna have to work on him. He, he didn't know I was gonna do this. See, he yeah, can that's mic up. True though. I don't uh, think you're crazy. Uh, okay. Well, no, it's uh, we we have a good family enterprise here. It's it's really fun to uh, uh and we want to thank Josh for for because he, he's working. He's uh, he's got his own business, very successful in his own right. And uh, taking his time, taking time away from his family to to step up and step in, and to keep us running smoothly. So thank you, Josh. Oh no problem. I appreciate you having me in here. Yeah. Uh, Privilege to be able to watch you guys do what you do. Yeah, that's what you say on air, off air. Yeah. He, he, 
Folks, he beats me. Okay, elder abuse. <laughs> he beats me. He beats it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I just want to just want to welcome everyone. And I had a, just a tremendous conversation with a with a listener today, and it started off really really bad. You know, I got to tell you something. What the conversation? Well, no, actually, the way I answered the phone because oh, okay, he was. Well, you, unhappy you, with the phone ringing. Okay, no, you, you've been here when we have just had constant, yes. like one after another after another, phone calls from solicitors. And we're on the do not call list, and, and some I really believe are just merely to harass. And uh, and, and I and I truly believe that just meant to harass. Um, so. This was uh, call number fifteen, and I had had about enough of it, and I had to answer the phone, and there was a connection connectivity problem initially, and I was like really kind of kind of irritated, and uh, it was just such a sweet uh, sweet woman. I don't have the permission or authority to to say her name, but um, uh, just such a sweet sweet lady, and so, such a sweet woman. And we spoke, and, and she prayed actually for for Joe and I, and for for us, and and I just want to say thank you so much publicly. It really meant a lot. It, uh, well, I guess I can say her first name. I don't know, Sheila. I'll just say Sheila. Uh, that was her first name. Is her first name? God bless her. I mean, uh, such a sweet woman, and uh, well needed. You know, it was just it was just one of those things where I I don't know. Again, you know, you're just inundated with, uh, uh, inundated, uh, with, uh, with negativity so early. All right. Having said that, uh, just want to, uh, tell you about tonight and then I'll bring Joe on. Uh, tonight, of course, John Haller. If you haven't, uh, folks, have you, do you know about John Haller? You should. John Haller by, is an attorney by profession, a trial lawyer by profession. And Joe and I met him in Dublin, Ohio, at the Prophecy Conference in Dublin, Dublin Ohio, in November, I think it was October, November 2014. John yes. Heller has got, he, yeah, and he's got um, a, a series on the Internet. And again, this is a trial attorney, and he's got a series on the Internet right now. He's he's also um, uh, had something, the Fellowship Bible Chapel Church. Um, but he's got a a, a Facebook presence but he also, if if you go to, um, we'll put up the link, or Joe, you can supply the link. If you go to his his, uh, his YouTube site, you can watch his videos um, about the chessboard, about the geopolitical chessboard. It's an amazing. I mean, he he really paints an amazing picture. This past weekend, I had watched basically the entire year's worth. I think. Of his updates, and uh, he must be. Well, I've never seen him in court, but he must be one heck of a trial attorney because he lays out the the facts pretty well. So that hours two and three tonight. In the first hour, we're going to be getting into the news. Before we before we go any further, want to let people know portions of nice broadcast brought to you by WholeTonesLive dot com. Now we, you know it's time to get serious, folks, about WholeTonesLive. WholeTonesLive.com. Time to get serious. If you're like we are, you're just inundated with just stuff. I mean, it, it, life is tough enough. 
sometimes. I mean, in all real practicality, taking the kids to school or, or taking the grandchildren here or there or making sure you're, you've got enough food in the house and, and taking care of your family and going to work and coming home and running errands and, oh, just on and on and on. Well, you know what? Whole Tones Live, CD, slip it in the car, in your CD player in the car. I ask if they had eight tracks, but they don't. Hmm. No. Uh, seriously, uh, Whole Tones Live has got a wonderful product. It's music therapy, what I call music therapy. Now, that might not be the correct term, but the... The, the music of King David, using the, the frequencies of King David, the biblical frequencies to inspire, to, 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 um, take away your anxiety, your stress. It's Whole Tones Live. Go to WholeTonesLive.com and download a free sample, but, uh, even more importantly after tonight's show, go ahead and, uh, and, and, and get your CD set because I'm gonna tell you it does work. It, it helps my wife sleep. Lady, our studio dog, is she, she just loves it. And and I'm serious. The animals respond well to um, well well to this. More on this later. Speaking of animals, show I, I showed you a, a YouTube earlier. Do you remember how many how many how many people remember this? Uh, boy, have times changed. You remember. Folks, going to the mall, and uh, you could wrestle a bear in the cage. I think I think it was I think twelve fifty maybe, and, and you can go in the cage. And of course, there's a guy, the, the trainer in the in the in the mall in the in the cage. But you you pay the you you sign a waiver and you paid I don't know a few bucks, and, and you go in the cage and, and you wrestle the bear, a live, real live, honest to goodness bear. I did that back, I think it was 1978. Young, impulsive, kind of stupid. I lasted, that sounds I, dangerous. No, you know what? It, 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 I, for whatever reason, I didn't have a fear. And that's weird because uh, insects uh, scare you. Yeah, I don't like spiders, for example. Uh, but but a bear, I walked in and, you know, I, and I don't care about, like, <laughs> mice don't, I don't care, rats or whatever. You know, I just shoot them. But spiders, I don't like. But, but yeah, well, I, I I remember doing this, and in, in, in it was I think it was January. No, it was uh, I don't know. It was in the spring of '78, I believe it was. How many people remember doing that? Uh, how many people in our audience? I, I'm curious to know if if you remember. Uh, at the time, the malls were re- relatively new, and they, you 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 could walk, you could go in a cage and and wrestle up there. A bear, and people would, you know, be out watching other people do it, and um, that's what we're doing as Christians today. We're we're wrestling with a bear. That lasted all of I think ten seconds in there. I wish somebody would get that on tape. Really? Well, you know what? I think, um, oh man, from memory, it was almost like uh, you could. Uh, I think somebody was there taking Polaroids, and, and then you could buy the Polaroid afterwards. I, it, it, it was such a long time ago. Um, but I'm just curious how many people remember that. And if anyone else was stupid like I was and you go in and wrestle the bear. Uh, seriously. 
I might have even like you know wet myself when I was in there because <laughs> uh, you know. It, it, but um, it, it, what a weird feeling. But anyway, um, so that's what we're doing now. Um, we're wrestling with the bear, and and the bear is of course our enemies, and um, we have to step up and we have to get active. All right. I don't know what made me think of that show today. Really yeah, don't. yeah, I hear. Hey, come in here. <laughs> he called me into his office and said, I did this once and I didn't know what he was talking about. And turn around and there's some, some guys with 70, definitely before my time. You can tell by the clothes and the haircuts in yeah. the cage with these bear, with this bear, you know, man after man getting knocked over and, and trampled down and, and trying to crawl out of the cage, but. I, I just can't see you doing that. It was, was kind of like, I, in my mind, I, I was thinking Gentle Ben. Remember the, 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 the television series Gentle Ben? No, probably not. But, um, in fact, in, I had a friend, the, the guy I was working with on in, in the ambulance uh, rescue service. We both went together, and, and I went first, and he, he said, nah, that's all right. And it was expensive at the time, like like 12 or 15 bucks to, to do that. Um I don't, I don't know. Kids, you know, young, young people. What are we thinking? We got uh, a lot of news to get into tonight. Um, as you said, John Haller will be with us in hours two and three. Uh, really looking forward to that. And folks, if you want to go to the website, it's Fellowship Bible Chapel, fbchapel.com. And from there, you can get the links to Facebook and YouTube and, uh, specifically John Haller's YouTube channel, as you were talking about. Uh, but we got a lot of news to get into. As I said, yeah. I don't know where yeah. you want to start. We got... Well, you go ahead and start, because Obama, I started yesterday. But you go ahead the, and start. Uh, the renegade-in-chief has endorsed Hillary Clinton as the uh, his, his pick for the next president. Obama endorses Hillary Clinton and urges Democrats to unite. And uh, there's another story related to this. I don't know uh, the timeline of these events here, but we have a, a New York uh, Times article from today, and we have a Weekly Standard article yeah. with a video from yep. today saying White House denies endorsement uh, will intimidate FBI investigators. And Obama met privately with Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, today. Yep. yep. White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest insisted that President Obama's endorsement of Hillary Clinton will not sway the ongoing FBI investigation into Clinton. The statement came after Obama released a video endorsing Clinton for President of the United States. Later this afternoon, according to the White House, Obama is meeting with attorney, the Attorney General. The meeting is uh, closed to the press. So apparently in the Oval Office at 3.25 p.m., uh, Lynch and Obama met. The topic of Obama's closed-door meeting with Lynch has not been made public. Ernest made the statement in response to questioning from Fox News' James Rosen. Uh, and the topics or topic of this meeting not being made public, um, I think we can understand why that is. There has been new information about the Hillary Clinton email scandal, and the uh, there was certain... Uh, emails that were leaked and there's new controversy surrounding the TPP yeah, yeah. and not releasing these emails until after the election which is a choice that was made by the president in his administration 
And you have uh, uh, Obama commenting on this email scandal, saying that he doesn't see uh, a threat to national security from the classified emails being hacked and, and other countries being able to read them, even though it's an ongoing investigation. And other times, he, that's basically his disclaimer when asked questions about different scandals and situations. Well, I can't comment on an ongoing investigation. But for some reason, this is different for him, as he has uh, said many things about um, Hillary Clinton and the investigation, uh, even stating uh, something along the lines of the FBI isn't going to you know, indict her uh, about a month back. Hmm. So there's a lot of controversy here. And, you know, all of this... Um Obama called Hillary. Uh, what did he say here? I don't think there's ever been someone so qualified to hold this office. That's Hillary Clinton. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> yeah. No, he's just shaking his head. Well, to to move it away from the the uh, Hillary, uh, moving away from Hillary in the California. That's yeah. Uh, uh, well, one thing I'm I'm curious. I know we have listeners in Australia. Good morning to to our listeners in Australia. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate you. We really do. Uh, good day, mate. Horrible, horrible uh, imitation. Now, uh, thank you to our to our Australian listeners. But my question is, um, I'd really like at some point a, a first person account of the gun control. If if you were if you were of age and awake and aware when. Australia implemented gun control slash confiscation. I'd really like to hear from someone. Wasn't there other print. countries like Venezuela? Um, well, there was South yes, American but, uh, countries recently. Australia was like the latest. The, no, the, 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 I think Australia to me represents the likelihood of what is in our. Uh, view, yeah, yeah. Because here's the reason I bring this up, and Joe, you, you had done research on this as well, and, and this is really interesting. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals mm-hmm. ruled today that there is no constitutional right to carry a concealed handgun. Yep, a seven to four right. decision. Right. And, and upheld, they upheld the California law that requires gun owners to show good reason before they can get a license to carry a concealed handgun. Now, I, I see conservatives, political conservatives and social conservatives say, well, that's okay, just open carry. Well, listen well, to this. Hold on. Listen to what, that's not right. A Clinton appointee, a judge, William A. Fletcher, said this. The Second Amendment may or may not protect some, uh, may or may not protect to some degree a right of a member of the general public to carry a firearm in public. Mm-hmm. If there mm-hmm. is such a right, it's only a right to carry a firearm openly, he said. The article from LA Times goes on to say gun owners said they expect to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court and also would challenge California's law on banning residents from carrying guns openly. California has allowed county 
law enforcement agencies to set the rules that limit permits for concealed guns. Some rural counties have relaxed rules and make permits easily available, while most urban counties have very strict gun rules. The, now, the Ninth Circuit panel that considered the challenge and said concealed weapon permits must be granted because the state had banned carrying guns openly in public. A 2012 California law took away the right of residents to carry unloaded guns in public with ammunition toted separately. Gun owners argued that the ban, in addition to uh, county restrictions on concealed weapons, made it impossible to defend themselves in public. Um, And it goes on to say, uh, in a dissent Thursday, Judge Callahan, a Reagan appointee, argued that depriving citizens of the right to carry a weapon in public, both openly and concealed, violates the Constitution. And he's exactly right. Uh, The Second Amendment is very clear. You have the right uh, to bear arms, and that right shall not be infringed. But here we see this being infringed. You know, this country was formed by armed citizens taking a stand against tyranny. And unless we, the people, remember and fully embrace this, we will never rid ourselves of the feral, and I mean feral, the grifters, the thugs, the communists, the the mentally ill who have created an unsafe environment in this country. Yeah. You know, and... I mean, look at some of the latest uh, mass shootings, especially yes. the latest one in UCLA. They seem to always happen in gun-free zones. And, and you know, th- this is one more thing. I, I will not... Um, I'll, I'll admit this. I carry twenty-four-seven. Okay. I mean, I, maybe I, maybe it's foolish to admit that, but I carry twenty-four-seven. Well, of course, you know, not. I mean, obviously, in my home, it, it's or in my office, it, it's different. But if I'm if I'm out, I'm armed. All right. And if if there's a sign on a business that says no guns or whatever, I'm not going in. I don't have to worry. I don't like you know because it's against the law in Pennsylvania, for example, to 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 go into casinos. I don't go into casinos anyway. Last time I was there, I, I think it was for my. It's against the law to go to casinos with a gun. Oh, you know, yeah, <laughs> no, you didn't. But but um, yeah, I think last time I was there, was, my father-in-law had a. His 80th birthday party, and he wanted to, I don't know, play the slot or something like that. So we took him up there. But you know, you know. But I, I would never uh, visit a um, a business that did not honor the constitutional um, right. For would you? So is it possible, folks, for us to change things? If you are a man or a woman, and you've got a concealed weapons permit, and you do carry. Um, can we? Is it possible for all of us not to shop, for example, not to not to participate in, uh, or not not to give our money to, to businesses who don't honor that Second Amendment? I'm just asking. Do, is this one way we can make a difference? Well, we know criminals I mean, aren't going to follow the law, right? So. 
I mean, is it going to come to a point where, and, and there have been even cases in, in the last two weeks where mass shooting events have been stopped, one particularly in Texas, by people who had concealed carry, uh, who had weapons on them, uh, who stopped crimes in progress or as they were unfolding. But is it going to come to a point where a criminal with a gun tries to, we'll say, commit a robbery or shoot somebody who is stopped by somebody who has a, a weapon on them, who is carrying responsibly for the reasons of self-protection, right. and that person is charged with a crime even though they stepped in and protect protected those around them, possibly saving lives? I mean, is that where it's going to go? Well, and for some reason, just as an FYI, yeah. BTR has no sound. But we, we can fix that. Uh, the Mayday Manual. <laughs> the Mayday Manual. I saw the name on that. Yeah, I, I named it. Uh, <laughs> I laughed. The Mayday because, Manual. Uh, Eric wrote up uh, an excellent description of all the steps you have to go through to turn everything on, get it going, and, and the... It's, shutting a, it's down. a launch sequence. I yeah, think. it's like four or five pages of just really detailed stuff, and you put it on a on the tag on there the Mayday manual. Yeah, because I, I read through it and I thought, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, when you're when you're uh, if you've ever flown an aircraft, you're you've got a manual like a checklist both before takeoff and such, but or before takeoff, but also if you're if you experience trouble, you know, you there's a manual for things and. Josh, by the way, is a pilot, uh, uh, was a licensed pilot. He attended Embry-Riddle along with the terrorists. But um, <laughs> uh, I'm, well, the first part's serious, but uh, I'm serious when he said about, about it. But anyway, um, I'm not sure. Are you still licensed? You're not, you're not licensed. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you fly? Uh, he said no. Okay. All right. Anyway, and, uh, it'd be nice to have a pilot in the family, wouldn't it? Just real quick on the beach. Question your plane. Uh, the only thing I can think of, Josh, on Soundboard 1 is the BTR. I think it's number 4, but that should... Uh, 1, 2, and 4 should not be read like the rest of them. But I think that you had it right there uh, last time I looked, so I don't know. Uh, we can uh, just take the MP3 and replace it. Yeah, it doesn't help the people listening. I'm not trying to listen right now. Huh? Well, we got 8 people on the line. I know, um, I know. And we got uh, that's some people right, that's in the right. interactive but, chat. Yeah, but that's fine. They're well, listening through other means. Well, all right. Well, go to Global Star, and that there is the best audio. Mm-hmm. Um, Global Star Radio Network has the best audio. They've got the uh, latest equipment. They got the best sound. They make us sound better than we actually do. Anyway, um, and I'm so thankful again for for everyone. But but getting back to this handgun. Uh, issue, the concealed weapons issue. Uh, I I suspect that what we're first of all, we, if Hillary gets in the, in the in the White House, it's going to be this is going to be first on her agenda to to lop this. I mean, to take away our guns. Well, you said it correct about the um, what they're doing in California, restricting applicants by making them showing yeah. show supporting documents such as restraining orders. Yep. Uh, or, as you said, reasons that they would need to carry uh, a weapon. Take a copy of the Constitution. And, yeah. I mean, you're talking about infringing on people's rights. I mean, there's various levels and ways that they're doing it. 
aside from this ruling, the, the, just the fact that they're asking for reasons that you would need to be armed is a violation of your constitutional rights. Um, it is not their job to, uh, you know, you do not have to qualify. You do not have to, to have a reason. If you want a gun and your background is, is free of, of uh, violent crimes or, or felonies, then you should be able to own a gun. You know, this and goes... And there is a gray issue Well, the, the crimes. I say a violent crime, you know, should okay. take a second look at, but... Well, we could, yeah, I mean, this is a... Gun control, uh, John, Dr. John Coleman did a... He wrote a book about gun control, and I wonder... Hang on a minute here, let me... Let me look down here. I'm not sure if I have it. No... We've got uh, we've got books everywhere, but but he did a, a he wrote a great book about gun control and about uh, as well as abortion, but but about the constitutionality of gun control and um, w- what its end game is. Um, but, but here's the thing: um, sorry, I'm, we're looking at uh, we're we're trying to we're trying to repair the uh, or fix the uh, sound and and uh, video issues. Okay, open carry is illegal, for example, in California. I had made reference to open carry before, so you open carry. Well, open carry is illegal in California. The Ninth Circuit Court, the makeup, understanding the makeup of the Ninth Circuit Court, they knew this, and they made this ruling with the backdrop of illegal open carry. So... If open carry is illegal in California, think think this through now. And concealed carry and concealed is, now illegal. is illegal. You're, you've you've you where's the no gun? There you go. It's so, illegal to to have a gun. So are are we seeing? And, and we know the 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 tyranny and and the mental uh, uh, the mental problems in my view, or the mental perversion of the Ninth Circuit. But is this is this kind of a backhanded backdoor way of of yes of negating the Second Amendment? Yes. All right. Um, just alone, uh, in a Fox News article talks about just the the good clause standards that you were talking about is um, reason enough to be very upset about this. But in here in Pennsylvania, we have. Uh, you have to apply for a permit for concealed carry. Right. But you don't have to apply for a permit for open carry. Correct. But you but, just have to have but try, a, but try have open a carrying. Gun. Oh, right, I mean, right. you know, you walk down the street with a, with Unless a you have 44 a Magnum uh, strapped on your belt and you're, you're, yep. <laughs> or a 38. And you're, it doesn't matter. You're going to have people just freak out. Oh my gosh, I got, no, no. Yep. And, and despite the legality of it. Um, it's going to be, it's crazy. But, 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 but here, this is an unconstitutional ruling by a federal court that is unconstitutionally applied. And, and really, folks, yeah. if you if you're listening to the sound of our voices and you live within the jurisdiction of the Ninth Circuit Court, understand that this is unconstitutional. It's unconstitutionally applied, and it is up to the states. It's up to really you to reject and nullify these unconstitutional acts and decisions of the feds, which are by definition tyranny. We we 
were behind our, our forefathers created a revolution for much less now understand this because this is so important one thing that is lost in, in all of this muck and mire and, and the smoke and mirrors of this is that the scope of the decision within within the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or any court or any case applies only to those parties involved in the litigation. Now, precedent may be applied to another case, but legally it only is binding to the parties or the litigants of the case being heard. Yet people will say, no, it's the law now, to everybody. This is a, a, a tremendous perversion of power. And this is where you phrases like legislating from the bench, you hear phrases like that. And, and perhaps John Haller, who's, who's an attorney, trial attorney, can even talk about this. But, I mean, th- this in, in the scope of things is minor compared to what what uh, John Haller will be talking about. And by the way, um, go to John Haller's Facebook and, uh, you know, uh, befriend him, uh, interact with him, social on the social network and and make sure you you, you know you, you you tell them if you haven't heard them before say hey I just heard you on the Hagmans or whatever you're gonna you're gonna love him uh, I guarantee it he's 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 a, a, a tremendously I mean his intellect and, and understanding of the word is great but but yes it's just so Joe I mean uh, here we are with this with and, and I think this is a big a big deal here I think the timing of this is is not by accident. And I think that we're looking at a situation with respect to the Second Amendment where we're gonna, we're not going to be able to own firearms, or if we are, it's going to be severely restricted. And uh, what, what do you think? I mean, uh, the timing uh, not coincidental. No, I mean, not at all. You had the California primary. You also also had a national. I think it was Gun Violence Day, uh, or something to do with uh, uh, restrictive restricting gun laws. Uh, on the Democratic side last week in California. You had the UCLA shooting on that same day as whatever uh, holiday or whatever that was they were celebrating. Um, and, but, you know, we've talked about this a lot. They can't come after all the guns. They yeah, can come after right. all the people. And they will eventually at some point. Um, and if we really want to talk about, you know, the how easy it would be to uh, have some kind of martial law breakout and gun roundup. They don't they don't have to do that. I mean, we talked about the, the increased technology they have, right. you know, with the sound weapons, with weather manipulation weapons. I mean, they could take out a whole city with a frequency from a satellite if they wanted to. So they really wouldn't need to go door to door just to, to get in gun battles with, with Americans to take the guns. They can do one of two things: wipe everybody out, or turn the power off and wait for everybody else to to kill each other in the chaos, or collapse the economy. You know, create a scenario in which would create some kind of um, every man for himself situation for an extended period of time. Come in a month later and clean up the mess. What'd you say? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just don't. 
Why? Uh, 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 go ahead. Unless they really had, I mean, like Henry Kissinger, the famous quote, military men are dumb, stupid animals to be used as yeah, pawns yeah, in foreign policy. Yeah. Unless they wanted to send, you know, the, the cops and the, the military and National Guard into harm's way in a war against their own people, their own citizens. Well, see, they, something's going to happen, them. though. This summer, in the spring, and and I hope I'm wrong. I'm I I don't I'm not predicting this, but I'm looking at the situation, and and we have a a, a big whiteboard. I mean, a huge whiteboard, and and I've been I've been kind of mapping out some certain things on this whiteboard, and um, uh, but what I see coming here this summer, this uh. With the, with the conventions, somewhere around the conventions, I, I, look, I, I see, I see death, okay, violence. I see dead people. Yeah, I see dead <laughs> people. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, it, it, I guess it isn't funny, but no, I, it is going to be. I mean, this is the most intense political uh, climate we've seen, and on the heels of a presidential election, which many of the people are just in, incredibly emotionally engaged for some reason due to hate yeah. and other reasons it's a recipe for absolute disaster i mean now i want to say this we had uh we we were close to getting donald trump on on our program in an interview and then there was a shake up in his campaign personnel and uh, i don't know i'm going to i'm going to invoke uh, call some favors and then maybe even ted Broerick can assist me in this Ted's going to be on tomorrow. Assist us in this in getting maybe either uh, Trump or his uh, campaign manager on. But but uh, the reason I brought that up is, I, you know, I, I once more I looked at the cover of the Economist magazine. Now, I, look, I understand. I, I understand that it's not. I mean, the objectives of the globalists are just that. They're their goals, and it's not set in stone. And, and they fail much of the, many times. They fail. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't see folks a, a, a Trump in a Donald Trump in the White House. Now, that's not to say I, I don't want that. It's to say I don't see him. I don't see him getting there because I see some extremely dirty tricks being done between now and November. Whether and I mean deadly, even deadly. I really I, I see this taking place. Um, and I'm not even sure Hillary is going to survive. I, I suspect she will. But it, it, I've never been so uncertain about anything than than this this election and, and the integrity of the election process or lack thereof, of course. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's we're looking through a glass darkly on this one. But I don't think it's gonna. I, I think I think when things happen, I think people are gonna say, "Wow, I didn't see that coming." What do you think, folks? I mean, I want you to consider. We want you to consider things like that. Um, you know, God can't be put in a box. We 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 shouldn't put God in a box, of course. And, and that's you've heard people say that. But on the flip side. I think a lot of people are, are are expecting a certain course of events to take place. 
but I think they're going to be blindsided because, hey, you know, I never saw, I didn't see that coming. I, I didn't see that coming, whatever that might be. And I don't know what that is. I've got people telling me what they think it is based on their information, but I don't, I, you know, I don't know. So, um, you've got, uh, at issue, at least politically, you've got the Supreme Court makeup, and, and that is only, I mean, the the gun control issue, the ninth yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Court of Appeals ruling. So this will have to be appealed at the Supreme Court level. So I guess the question is, will the Supreme Court end up being the ones who make the final decision on this? And if that's so, will it apply to the state or only, or will it? I have to stop. You know, you know what? I got to stop doing this. I've been writing my notes on on the computer as opposed to paper, and I can't find. Where I wrote things. Well, I guess um, we can ask John Allen when he comes in. It would end up being a four-four tie, I believe, and it would. Um, I, I th- yes, to answer your question, I believe that's the case from memory. Um, it would become like the national law if the Supreme Court rule whatever. The no, Supreme no, Court no, rule no. Was. It would just affirm the the California. Uh, it would just affirm the California <laughs> statute. Okay. Okay, so. Or the California opinion, I'm sorry. Um, so the Supreme Court couldn't come in and rule that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling would was correct and constitutional and now is the law of the land? No, no, it would only be for, for that particular... It's my understanding now. Okay. However, okay, um, in, in a 4-4 Supreme Court tie, for example, would effectively or could... And, and, and I'll get we'll get John Haller's take on this. Um, could this amend the Constitution by fiat, for example, by allowing the ruling to stand and impose California law nationwide? Is that that's what you're asking, right? Mm-hmm. So so could they take this and and the Supreme Court hear this? And by nature of the the makeup of the Supreme Court now with uh, with uh, Scalia out of the picture, a four four tie would effectively um, uh, it would default to the the opinion rendered by the Ninth Circuit. It would verify that or default to that, and then would that effectively amend the Constitution by by fiat allowing the ruling to stand and impose California law on a national scope? That's a great question, and, and is this what we're facing? And I, I, I hope that's not the case. And, and I think, see, something like this, this is what I'm talking about when people say, well, gee, I didn't see that coming, and we never saw this coming. Not restricting it to this issue, but the entire landscape, um, geopolitical, domestic issues. And if you live in Australia, if you live in the U.K., if you live in wherever you're listening to this program, apply that to me, apply what, what we're saying right now to, to all of the situations, because I do believe that we're, Joe, I think we're at a point right now where you it, the predictability factor, whereas in, as I recall, back in the 1980s and when I started watching the political machinations, there there was a level of, of, of predictability. Now, not so much. I mean, even Carter and Reagan remember the 1980 election. Um, nope, I don't remember that one. Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, a little bit before your time. 
but I, and I, re, I remember it, it, but a lot of, a lot of people are comparing in, in some ways elements of the election or the, uh, um, election process of today to Carter and Reagan back in 1970, or it was, uh, uh, yeah, 1980. I wanted to say no, 78, but it was 1980, and I don't see that. Um, I, I don't see the, the similarities. I, I don't. I mean, I, uh, the similar the, the similarities are not present in my view. I, know, I just got off on a on a wrong train there. Okay. Here, I got some interesting news uh, I wanted to cover. There's a few different stories here. Um, first, <clears throat> U.S. taxpayers are funding Iran's military expansion. Yeah. This from Bloomberg.com. One of the unexpected results of President Obama's new opening to Iran is that U.S. taxpayers are now funding both sides of the Middle East's arms race. The U.S. is deliberately subsidizing defense spending for allies like Egypt and Israel. Now the U.S. is inadvertently paying for some of Iran's military expenditures as well. But we've been doing that forever, though. I mean, this is just being admitted now to me. I mean, but go ahead. This is what, yeah, it's, it all starts with $1.7 billion the U.S. Treasury transferred to Iran's central bank in January. During a delicate prisoner swap and the implementation of last summer's nuclear deal, to resolve a long-standing dispute about Iran, Iran's arm purchases before the 1979 revolution. <clears throat> For months it was unclear what Iran's government would do with this money, but last month the mystery was solved when Iran's Guardian Council approved the government's 2017 budget that instructed Iran's central bank to transfer the $1.7 billion to the military. Hmm. From here it goes on uh, to state that... Um, they, uh, because of, uh, Republicans, Democrats who opposed Obama's nuclear deal have argued that the end of these sanctions would help fund Iran's military. But, but, but Joe, all of this funding, and it's not just Obama, all the funding for Iran has come from the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, and Paul Ryan, who, they, because they control all of the funding, funding. Um, <laughs> It, it would be wrong to to blame this all on, for example, all on uh, Obama. Um, but I, I, just so people understand this, see, the congressional leadership had the uh, passed laws. They had the sanctions. Um, Obama was Obama had the ability to to enforce sanctions. But our congressional leadership, well, Obama dissolved essentially the sanctions on Iran. They he unfroze Iran's assets, right? And by unfreezing them, and, and let me go over the numbers here because this is important. Because you know what the Obama administration did is is like you said, it's not completely their fault. But the expansion aspect. Uh, and what we're seeing now as a result is the fault of the right. Obama administration. Two sides. going to right. say here yep. that yep. Iran's been pleading poverty in recent months. Thank you for the, making that more coherent. The yep. country's supreme leader and foreign minister publicly complained that Iran's economy has not seen the benefits expected from the Iran nuclear deal, and yet Iran's 2017 
$19 billion defense budget has increased by 90% from the 2016 budget. That $1.7 billion increase came directly from U.S. taxpayers in what could be or could have been a payment of a ransom in exchange for U.S. spies. That's still unclear. Where Okay, so where does the State Department fit in, the John Kerry State Department or Hillary Clinton State Department before that? Where, where do they fit into all of this? That's one thing Bloomberg does not... <laughs> Okay, because they can, they, the State Department has confirmed the Obama Iran nuclear deal is non-binding, yet they're operating as if it is, if that makes sense. Um, given the fact that Obama, you know, laterally decided to dissolve the sanctions and release Iran's frozen assets, um, with congressional oversight and a nod and a wink. Yeah, and there's more going on here, too, in the international arena. Um, there's an article here that ties into this. Uh, the UN's Ban Ki-moon admits <laughs> threats resulted in Saudi-led coalition being removed from blacklist. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon admitted that the decision to remove the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen from the organization's blacklist came after threats from a number of countries. Human right, rights groups right. are urging him to backtrack on the decision. Ban Ki-moon said on Thursday that temporarily removing the coalition from the blacklist was one of the most painful and difficult decisions I've had to make. It raised the very real prospect that millions of other children would suffer grievously. The UN Secretary General added it is unacceptable for member states to exert undue pressure uh, scrutiny is natural and a necessary part of work at the United Nations. Apparently, Obama, hmm. Obama, and it's uh, the Obama administration and the Saudi Arabian government threatened Ban Ki Moon. This is what RT is reporting. Okay, and Iran is involved in this. Um, Ban did not specifically mention the Saudi-led coalition in his remarks, but it comes after a diplomatic source told Reuters on condition of anonymity, that the U.N. was faced with bullying, threats, and pressure um, from uh, Rod, Rahid, whatever, okay. Radad, I don't know, um, the clerics in Saudi Arabia issued so, a fatwa against the U.N. declaring it anti-Muslim. Um, over over this yes. this particular aspect. So I right. to display the fatwa is a legal option used in Sharia law in Saudi Arabia. They can only be issued by the group's top right. government right. appointed clerics and sometimes commissioned by ruling families to back up its political positions. Uh, several diplomatic sources said the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. Uh, would be hit especially hard if the blacklisting was upheld. Saudi Arabia was the fourth biggest donor hmm. um, to the UNRWA last year, supplying over $100 million. The Saudi Arabian government denied it had threatened the UN, and the story on RT goes into all the details of the UN's removal of the coalition from the blacklist came on Monday despite releasing a report the same day which said it had caused 60% of the child deaths in Yemen last year, killing 510 and wounding 667. Uh, the Yemeni president also, uh, after Ban Ki-moon made this statement, came out and said that Saudi Arabia and the Saudi regime is no different from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that they're one and the same. 
Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I'm all right with that. <clears throat> and that's what um, this whole thing was about. They they were bullying the UN into taking the Saudi Arabian ISIS forces, we'll call them, right, off the terror blacklist. Even though they are responsible, uh, just from last year, for killing over 6,500 people, 3,200 of those civilians, from mm. Yemen to Iran. This is pretty interesting when you look but at this from a globalist UN, perspective, right? The, the Secretary UN, General right. threatened and making a decision based on those threats, then coming out stating what he did and saying he he uh, felt sorry for what he did, but not changing his decision. Now, now, consider what you just heard. I mean, go back in time here, back in January, yet. UN Chief Ban Ki Moon congratulating Venezuela on its re-election of the Human Rights Council. Okay, wow. <laughs> All right, um, back in January. Okay, so the socialist government of Venezuela welcomed back into the Human Rights Council on the United Nations again, in the context of what Joe was talking about, and then you've got. Bank Ki Moon exhibiting uh, this unbelievable contempt for what is taking place for the Syrian agony. This was reported by Roots Shiva back in January as well. Remarks uh, um, were made by uh, Bank Ki Moon in which uh, he expressed sympathy for the Palestinian terrorist attacks. Or, or attackers, I should say. Yeah. So well, human in the right context of that... Uh, and there's human rights watch groups. Amnesty International uh, wrote a letter to Ban Ki-moon Wednesday saying, if the Saudi-led coalition wants to be removed from the list, it should stop killing and maiming children, bombing schools and hospitals oh, in Yemen. The violations for which was it was listed, uh, the group wrote, as quoted by Reuters. And this goes on to say that the... Uh, this tarnishes Ban Ki-moon's uh, record as Secretary General of the UN as uh, he is about to step down right. from power before the end of this year. Folks, we're up against the top of the hour. Isn't it interesting how these headlines could run much deeper? The information is much deeper than the headlines really reflect. We're going to be right back with, with our guest, John Helen, right? This is the Global Star Radio Network. You may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden. 
exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond, you may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stained by blood. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this hour, this segment of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Boy, we are so blessed to have a gentleman that uh, Joe and I met. Uh, this is back, I believe it was late 2014, at a uh, prophecy conference in Dublin, Ohio. His name is John Haller. It was, it was a, I believe it was a Columbus Bible Prophecy Conference. Or it was down in Dublin. And uh, uh what what a man of integrity by profession he is a trial attorney a long time trial attorney and if you search his name um you can find his facebook page and uh i would i would urge everyone to to visit his his facebook page and to, and to, to uh uh to link up with him because he's got some fabulous teachings he is an elder with the uh, uh the um uh, I just wrote it down here. Uh, fellowship. Fellowship. Fe- fe- fellowship. Yeah. Right. Fellowship Bible Chapel. I'm so go. sorry. I'm, lo- I'm, I'm here. I am, I'm looking at my notes and uh, <laughs> for whatever reason between the paper and my, my brain, it's not regis- registering, but nonetheless, we, we've got, uh, I mean, it, it's such an honor. And, and talking with, uh, with, uh, John Heller at the conference, and listening to him, I suppose listening to him and hearing him speak about various geopolitical issues and, and how late we are in the, in the, in the time, in the season, um, he's got a lot of information to provide. And again, folks, a trial attorney by profession. So he, here's a, here's a guy who will lay out the facts and, um, I, I certainly would love to be able to sit and watch in, in a courtroom and watch him, uh, um, but we'll watch him in, in 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 action because I'm sure he could dazzle a jury with facts and and um, really make his cases known. Before we get to Mr. Haller, I, I want to draw everyone's attention to WholeTonesLive.com. See, every night at this time we get deliveries from UPS, and uh, there's our lady, our studio dog. So. She's weighing in, however, on WholeTonesLive.com. WholeTonesLive.com, folks. Go to WholeTonesLive.com. If you're, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling like life is just mowing you over, we have the solution. Uh, WholeTonesLive.com has a very special offer for listeners of the Hagman and Hagman Report. And you know what, folks? We had the creator of Whole Tones Live on our show, Michael Terrell. What a gifted man, uh, explaining the 
the healing powers. Now, we're not talking any New Age anything. This is biblically based in terms of frequency. And he put together a compilation of, of music that that accesses frequencies that, uh, you know, will help you sleep, help with your mental acuity and mental focus and such. Visit WholeTonesLive.com. Take advantage of their free sample. And after you're done, go ahead and order the discs. And, in fact, for Hagman listeners, $10 off on your order. It's a fantastic deal. That's WholeTonesLive.com. WholeTonesLive.com with the W-H-O-L-E, WholeTonesLive.com. And read, definitely, when you're there, read about the the, um, the founding of well, read about how this all came about. It's fascinating. It really is. And we know that frequencies were used for, you know, for bad. But now you can access the powers of frequencies for, for the better. That's WholeTonesLive.com. And, Joe, again, I'm just so excited to have uh, John Heller tonight. Yeah. Um, we, you and I spoke before the show, and we were talking about his um, uh, his prophecy updates and folks, if you if you haven't done so already, or if you if you haven't uh, haven't checked them out, go ahead and uh, search his name, or simply go to fbchapel.com, right? fbchapel.com, and, and uh, from there you can you can access his his teachings. YouTube, it's on YouTube as well. The the prophecy updates. John, I'm so sorry I, I kind of bungled that introduction up, but uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for your gift of time. Oh, I think maybe, John, did we lose you there? Sorry, I, I muted it so I could cough, and then I forgot to turn it back on. So. <laughs> That's all right. It, it happens when you get to our age, right, Doug? <laughs> and, um, well, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it's good to be with you guys and uh, looking forward tonight. You know, I, I'll just say at the outset that uh, we uh, I, I teach at a small church. We probably run attendance from 90 to 130. We've been in existence about three years. Uh, we meet in the north side of Columbus, Ohio. And uh, one of the things, I, I'm fortunate enough to teach there because uh, the people at the church have determined that they want to hear somebody talk about Bible prophecy. And so we do have a pretty heavy emphasis on Bible prophecy and current events and how those things are fitting into to the prophetic picture. So we try to do that every week. Uh, we also have a pastor, Steve Mitchell, uh, another teaching elder, Mike Clapham, that uh, also teach on prophecy but also do expository and topical Bible teaching. Um, when we started as a church, we decided to, excuse me a second, we decided to put things up on uh, YouTube, and the people at the church decided that this would be a ministry. They invested in some uh, pretty good quality um, high-definition cameras, sound equipment, uh, and you know we have a whole team that comes in early every Sunday to to set things up <coughs> to set things up on the. Uh, because we rent a facility, we have to set up and tear down, and there's some wonderful people that just come and devote an hour and a half of setup and then another an hour and a half of tear down every every single Sunday. And wow. uh, we're really blessed to have them. Um, you know, we we started putting things up on YouTube just, just so people at the church could keep up, and then for some reason it started to... It got shared on Facebook and different groups... And people started sharing the the things, and so it's uh, God's blessed us to 
the point where we're probably getting somewhere uh, close to 5,000 unique views every day of the of the year. And, yeah. and it's well worth it. I mean, I looking at your series, and of course, um, I, I actually was was told, hey, watch the um, Prophecy up, Update uh, chessboard, you know, for the geopolitical th- uh, events, and, and that was just a classic. I, th- I think you did that back in... Um, uh, well, that that was your second to the last one. It was June fifth, uh, I believe it was. Yeah, that was the one I did last Sunday, the chessboard okay. one. Right, and, and then I just started going backwards and, and backwards in time, and, and just to watch the um, the year analysis of, of events and how it the geopolitics and Bible prophecy meet. This is what we talk about all the time. So it was just it really resonated with me. Your 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 teachings and, and your analyses. Um, just resonated with with both Joe and I, you, you know, uh, John. You're the guy to ask. Right before we brought you on, we were talking about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and about their their issue with the Second Amendment, specifically with um, no right to conceal carry. And I think you might have maybe caught some of that. Can, can you offer your legal insight into what we're what we're seeing here, and if there are any national applications? Yeah, well, the first thing I'll, I'll build on is your comment about predictability. Uh, I think you mentioned, you referenced the, the Reagan-Carter election back in 1980 to which, uh, Joe said, gee, I don't even, I wasn't even alive then or something. And, uh, yeah. but, uh, it, it is, it is a case right now where how the court will rule what the implications of it will be is totally unpredictable uh, ever since the death of uh, Judge Scalia. Uh, the court right now is, on most issues, is pretty much evenly divided four to four. Uh, it might, that, that majority might, it, there might be a majority on some issues, but the, the key issues where there's a real stark, what I would call liberal, uh, you know, sort of the uh, plastic constitution that they can shape and mold to whatever they want. The liberal view, it means whatever we say it means. And then the more strict constructionist or conservative view that uh, ta- uh, that's uh, Scalia, uh, judges, uh, Justices Alito and Thomas hold to. On those, when those issues are involved, you can almost guarantee that it's going to be a four-four decision now. Uh, so let's look at what could happen with this uh, Ninth Circuit case. Now, the Ninth Circuit case, I believe, originated down in San Francisco, where in San Francisco you essentially have to establish uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have a need to uh, uh, conceal carry. For example, you have to bring in a copy of a restraining order, or show that you have active threats, that you've made police reports. And by and large, most people are not going to be able to meet that kind of a standard. And and that's why they do it. They know it because they want to stop people from carrying guns. Um, so that went up to the, the lower court. I think, I, I don't remember what the lower court did. It went up to, um, when you go to the Court of Appeals, you have a, a small panel and then you can appeal to the larger panel, which is called an in-bank hearing. So the smaller panel ruled that uh, this this law was essentially unconstitutional. They then 
uh, asked for a hearing of the full panel of the 11th Circuit, and in a 7-4 decision, they said that, yes, this law was okay. There's no doubt that the um, the people who lost in that case will appeal it to the United States Supreme Court. When it gets to the Supreme Court, it's going to have to, there will be a two-step process. First, the Supreme Court will have to decide whether they're going to accept the case. Now, right now, and I think it takes four, uh, I, I don't do a lot of work in the Supreme Court, but what they do has a big impact on a lot of our lives. I think it takes four justices to uh, have a case accepted for oral argument, briefing, and decision. <coughs> the um, So assuming that they would decide to take the case, then the case will be heard by the Supreme Court. Now, right now, if it was heard and decided, it would be a 4-4 decision. I don't think there's any question about that because the most recent gun rights decision was 5-4 in favor of uh, supporting what the Second Amendment actually says. And um, so that, but Justice Scalia, who was the fifth vote, is no longer with us. So it would be a 4-4 decision. So what happens in the case of a tie? In the case of a tie, the most recent Court of Appeals ruling stands. So it would it would keep in place the Ninth Circuit decision that this particular law in California or the way it was being applied in San Francisco is okay and passes constitutional muster. It does not have nationwide application, though, because it just applies to the Ninth Circuit and really only applies to the the court in which the area covered by the court in which it originated. However, um, these court of appeals decisions then get cited by other circuit courts of appeal and adopted by those. Uh, the the Supreme Court could refuse to hear the case and wait until there's a conflict in the circuits, where one circuit says, "Yeah, we agree with the Eleventh Circuit." or the Ninth Circuit, and another one, say the Fifth Circuit, says, no, we don't agree with them. And um, then the... So it may be a long time down the road before this has national implications. However, I will say that there's one caveat. And that caveat is this. Uh, liberal justices don't care if it's a conflict or not. If it's an opportunity for them to make new law they will make new law. So let's say the election goes in a certain female candidate um, doesn't get indicted. Uh, if she does get indicted and she doesn't get pardoned, she well, in any event, she's, she becomes president. There is no way that the Republicans and the, assuming they hold the majority of seats, they control the Senate. There is, I have no confidence that the Republicans would be able to get by for the next four years and not have a Supreme Court justice be appointed. They will eventually cave and a justice will come into the Supreme Court. And if it's appointed by, uh, this certain female candidate, it will be a liberal justice. It will be someone on the the same um, liberal bent as Sotomayor, 
as um, as uh, Elena Kagan, and uh, and if she, I mean for crying out loud, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, they're probably going to have to roll her out there next fall when the in the first Monday in September <laughs> in a cryogenic chamber or something. She's um, I'm sorry, the uh, I I don't have much respect for those those people. It has nothing to do with their their gender. Uh, it has everything to do with uh, the way they treat and trample over the Constitution just to satisfy their little leftist political agenda. Right. I'm not very, by the way, uh, as you might gather, I'm uh, fairly conservative in my politics. Um, so if, 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 if a new justice is appointed, then when that case, that case that came in when it was 4-4, when there were eight justices, will now be decided by nine. And if it's a liberal justice, they'll lose the the people that want to protect Second Amendment rights, and then that would have national application. It, it's a huge issue, and regardless of what you think about uh, Donald Trump or anything like that, I the the list of just proposed justices that he put out was really a pretty good list. Uh, but you know, we all know that justices uh, or people that are appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, I don't know if it's something in the water in Washington, D.C., or uh, being around all those uh, sort of uh, evil symbols that are there in Washington, D.C., something happens to their mind, some of them. They, don't, they, aren't, they aren't able to hold it together, uh, like uh, David um, Souter that was appointed by Bush 41 uh, turned out yep. to be a huge major disappointment didn't hold the the conservative line on I can't think of a single thing he did that was that's worth uh, noting other than all the bad stuff that he did so <clears throat> when those when those when that case comes up it it could have national implications I mean and that shows that this election really is very important I I don't know for certain what Donald Trump will do there are no guarantees. The only guarantee is I know what Hillary Clinton will do. Yes. So to me, that this this is really um, th- this is really the critical issue for me in the election because um, we, in fact, we were when we talked the other day, we were talking about this. It it is difficult. It is impossible to believe that it has not yet been a year since the Obergefell decision approving same-sex marriage came down. That was on June 28, 2015. I mean, look at what has happened in our culture in a year. It's it's not about same-sex marriage anymore. Now it's this transgender um, nonsense, uh, well, not nonsense, evil, whatever you want to call it. we're a year down the road from that, and the the speed at which this whole sexual thing has come unwound has just been absolutely stunning. And I'm very concerned about America. I'm very concerned about our culture and where it's going. I'm concerned about the safety of people. And we we have really gone <laughs> totally down the postmodern uh, path where feelings are what controls everything. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I mentioned this in some of my, uh, updates recently. <coughs> Excuse me. Haven't coughed, haven't coughed all day and now, of course, I want to do it. Um, 
the, this transgender thing, one of the things I've pointed out is that uh, there is a, a gentleman named Larry McHugh. I think his first name is Larry. Larry McHugh. He was uh, the chief psychiatrist in the sex reassignment, sex change clinic at John Hopkins. And if you remember back in the, it was probably in the 60s or 70s that John Hopkins did the first sex change operation. Um, I think the person's name was Christine Jorgensen or something. I think it was a man turning himself into, well, thought he was turning himself into a woman. He was still a man because his DNA and genes were all male even after the hormone treatment and after having certain parts removed and other things added. Um, McHugh has, McHugh to his credit, and I don't know if he's a believer or not, but to his credit, he has been very, very vocal in discussing the transgender issue. And now this is the guy who was the head psychiatrist at that clinic. He is a uh, professor emeritus at John Hopkins. He's very well respected, and he has come out. He wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about a year, <coughs> maybe a year and a half ago. And he also came out with a statement uh, on behalf of that he signed on to with the American College of Pediatricians. And they came out and they said, listen, this, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this is a myth. You do not change a male into a female or a female into a male. They remain what they were born. And that in, in children who, in, but some children and people struggle with their sexual identity. <coughs> and what, <coughs> excuse me. And what is important, though, is if if you don't go along with their feelings, if you treat them as a male, if they're a male or a female, if they're a female, as a kid, over 90% of them will outgrow it and live their life as a normal, well-adjusted, heterosexual male or female. It's when these people foster these feelings that their kids are having and their confusion that the kids get even more confused. And McHugh in the pediat in the American College of Pediatricians statement came right out and said, "Listen, this doing this is child abuse. <laughs> it is child abuse." Wow. And well, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, uh, John, let me just interject one thing here. Um, I think we're. Ta- I think you're talking about Paul R. McHugh. Uh, That's right. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, M-C-H-U-G-H. The the reason this resonates with me is because I was doing some research about about this very issue in which you speak, and this did come up. He ended, as you had correctly stated, he ended the gender assignment surgery at John Hopkins back in 1979 in his capacity as chair of the Department of Psychiatry, citing exactly what you just said. Um, and wow, I mean, it, it so, so even today, but, but I just want to make sure that people know it's, it's Paul R. Yeah, McHugh. Go ahead. Sir. Thanks. I, I couldn't remember, but you know, and the other thing that they found in their research back in those days, so th- they stopped it at the, at the place where it started. They stopped it almost 40 years ago. And now it's this, it's this hot button issue 
by the people who really their goal has to be it's clear that their goal is to tear down all moral constraints in society uh they're they're moral wrecking balls obama and and Loretta Lynch and all the people that are going along with this and it's 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 having a huge impact i mean uh let alone the fact of the the opportunities it creates for sexual perverts to do something you know i'm going to a female bathroom just and i'll claim that I'm just feeling like a female that day, and you can't do anything to stop it. It's just it's nonsense. But what the research showed back in the 70s was that the people who actually went through the sex reassignment surgery were 22 times more likely, 22 times more likely to commit suicide than those who had not gone through the sex reassignment surgery. And that research... That research is, is, those are the facts. You know, look, I'm a lawyer, I'm a trial lawyer, and one of the things that, uh, well, the law has changed quite a bit since I started practicing in 1980. Uh, one of the things that, when, when I was a young trial lawyer, the, the, uh, seminars that you would go to to help you become a better trial lawyer would tell you how to present the facts better. Trial advocacy seminars are no longer focused on that. What they are now focused on is, for lack of a better term, how do you manipulate the feelings of the people that might be on the jury and get them to emotionally buy into your case? This is... uh I have to tell you that it's very distressing. Is it, would, you, would you call this a, a perverse application of neuro-linguistic programming in a sense? I mean, I don't want to, you know, um, I don't well, want to sound too, too, too far over the deep, deep end, but. Well, um, it, it, it certainly is based, it, it, it turns everything into a feelings-based culture. And, and, and it, it plays into that. I mean, look at what's going on with the, uh, so an editorial today talking about the precious little snowflakes that now um yeah generation uh, snowflake generation snowflake thank you and that that occupy our colleges and university can our college and university campuses you know they, they they everything is based on feelings i mean you go up the road here to one of the most liberal schools in the, in the world uh Oberlin uh college and at Oberlin, you know, they're, they're, they're having, uh, demonstrations because, uh, they don't follow the right Chinese, uh, f- recipe, the recipes for Chinese foods like they would in China. Therefore, it's a cultural, uh, a cultural, uh, violation of some kind that you're, you're slamming Chinese people by not preparing Chinese food as they would. I mean, it's just, and, and, you know, everybody's, I think in, in fact, up at Oberlin, there was an article in, uh, I think it was in the New Yorker or the Atlantic, uh, just recently talking about this where they now, they don't want anything lower than a B to be issued by professors, uh, even if they don't do the work because they're too, they're too busy out yeah. doing, uh, activist, activism. They can't, uh, be tied up with their studies. So, but, the practical effect on someone like me as a trial lawyer is I go into court and, you know, half the jury pool may come from the snowflake generation in which they're going to make their decision 
by and large based on feelings. And so if you really want to effectively represent your client, you have to appeal to their feelings in some fashion. And But what happens is that facts don't matter. And, uh, and once facts begin not to matter, then I, it's, it's really, uh, Doug and Joe, it's, it's really Katie bar the door on what's going to happen. It yeah. is, a, I, 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 I don't look forward to jury trials anymore. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, it just, I haven't, first of all, the other interesting thing about the trial practice is very few cases go to trial anymore. There's, uh, a big push to settle everything. Right. Uh, but the ones that do go to trial, um, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to read. I mean, um, I, I've had a jury, um, I, you know, look, I've won cases that I shouldn't have won. I've lost cases that I shouldn't have lost. I had one, um, I was sure that the, uh, that the, I, I knew who the foreman of the jury would be. It was pretty clear. And I, I thought this lady wanted to marry me. I mean, she, you know, I thought, I thought I had her in the palm of my hand and boy, it was the, it was the most stunning jury decision I've ever had against my client. Now I won the case on appeal, by the way, but, um, it was a devastating loss at the time and I totally misread where this lady was coming from. But you, you can't, it goes back to what we started with uh, one of the first comments, predictability. It, you know, one of the reasons why clients settle is because they do a risk analysis, like what it will cost me to go to trial and what are the possible, cons- you know, what are the possible, possible outcomes and what it's going to cost me. And right. now it's hard to, it's hard to make that calculus. I mean, I used to be able to <laughs> look at a set of facts, particularly back when I was doing medical malpractice defense and stuff. And I, I could tell the client, I could say, you go to trial on this, you're going to lose $175,000. And very often the jury verdict would come in <coughs> within one or $2,000 of that amount. You can't do that anymore. Uh, yeah. You know, that's something um, I was going to ask you about because courtrooms to me, Represent kind of a, a, a cross section of society in a, in a lot of ways, and although you could really never, at least in my view, and, and I'm not a lawyer, and I've just sat in on a lot of trials in my capacity as an investigator. Sometimes, I mean, you you could it, even even on the best day, you really it's difficult to predict what a, what a jury will do. Although you kind of get a gut feeling and a read of the jury, of course. But today, it's got to be maddening, I, I would imagine, because, it, how, I mean, how do you, you, you can't. I mean, I mean, it, it, it used to be impossible before, or, you know, I don't even know if that's the right word, difficult, extremely difficult before, but now it's got to be just totally impossible to, to get a good read. It, it is very difficult to give your client a a good analysis as to how it's going to go. And, and listen, we now have people from that generation, and I have no, by the way, in case some judge that I might be in front of here says, I have no particular judge in mind when I say this, but I can see what's happening, and I can see that we now have judges from that generation that are 
basing their decisions on feelings. <clears throat> they make their way up to the Supreme Court. The, the leftist philosophy is not fact-based. It's, it's, it's really a religion. It's really uh, feelings-based. Uh, it's not based on evidence or facts. It's just what they feel. It makes them feel better, regardless of whether it works or not. And, and look, we have at least four justices on the Supreme Court that come out of that philosophy. So the, it, it happened... It happened over a long period of time. Uh, there's a book that I read last year. I can't remember the name of the uh, the author. I can't remember his name. Uh, it was called um, The Devil's Pleasure Palace. It talked about how leftism, uh, this, this philosophy of Marxism, leftism, that type of thing, infiltrated the university campuses and then has just drilled down into the culture at large and I first I think that this is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy in some respect it it you know it, it talks like in second Timothy chapter 3 about people they, they won't love for, they won't have a love for the truth <laughs> other passages talk about the fact that uh, people will gather for themselves uh, teachers that will tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. And it says that this is what it's going to be in the end times. And so whether it happened by design or it just happened, there's no question but that the the universities, the education system in our country and around the world has really uh, brought this brought this thing that will allow Bible prophecy to be completely fulfilled right to the forefront. It's taken, and it's taken two generations to do it. It's, unfortunately, it's not going to be turned around in one generation or two generations. It, it, this is a problem that we're going to have, I, I believe, until the Lord returns. Interesting. I mean, wow. As I sit here listening to what you're saying, I mean, I'm depressing you, aren't I? <laughs> well, well, you know what? No, actually, you, you, in a sense, um, you're you're just you're verifying everything we, we've been talking about for for uh, as long as I can remember. I Especially mean, the hypersensitivity, the hyper emotionalism, the uh, lack of people, uh, the lack of ability from people to discern the truth based on facts versus truth based on their emotions and from the i don't know if you remember the the trump chalkings at uh one of the universities uh, here in this country where students were offended by people writing trump 2016 and, and chalk on the sidewalks and whatnot to this article today from you know the snowflake generation trigger warning meet generation snowflake the hysterical young uh, they say women, but I would just say young people who can't cope with being offended. And we see this, um, and I don't know if this time, if this is due, you know, to the, uh, internet and social media and the lack of actual human interaction and that being replaced with the, um, technical aspects that we see. But there is something going on where the truth is, uh, subjective instead of based on, on facts and this hypersensitive hyper emotionalism is uh, leading people to make choices as you said based on emotion which usually uh, emotions lead us astray you know just think about somebody cuts you off your first 
human instinct reaction is anger. Or, you know, if somebody, you know, looks at you funny or, or says something that you take the wrong way. If you acted on that initial anger, I mean, how bad would you feel later on? Um, you know, in, in your prayer when reading the Bible and understanding that we are to be patient and, um, to be sure and, and have a, a strong foundation. But this shows the opposite, that these people's foundations aren't there. And that's very troublesome. Well, it, and as I said, you're exactly right. By the way, the, the book uh, that I referenced, The Devil's Pleasure Palace, is subtitled The Cult of Critical Theory and the Subversion of the West. It's written by Michael Walsh. I, it came out last, uh, not quite a year ago, uh, last summer, right after the uh, Supreme Court decision. And it's a, it's a very interesting read about how he kind of shows how the, the philosophical foundations uh, were kind of brought in place. There's another book along the same lines that I think is a, a must read, uh, which is, uh, by Diana West called American Betrayal. And she, she traces from a little bit different perspective, but she traces and comes to essentially the same conclusion that Michael Walsh did, that this has been something that's been really by design and it's happened over a period of time. Uh, when I went to, uh, I graduated from college in 1976. I went to, uh, Indiana State University to, and you know, I had gone to a Christian college. Uh, I had grown, I was a preacher's kid. I'd grown up in a Christian home. For us, the, the, the church building, uh, for a lot of my life was right across the street from the parsonage that we lived in. And so, the church building was almost an extension of the family home. It was, it was, you really didn't figure, it, it just didn't seem like the church ended there and this was the home. It was all part of your life. And so I, I don't, you know, but I went to a secular, uh, schools, although even after the Supreme Court decision banning prayer, I can remember in sixth grade in, uh, in, uh, North Canton, Ohio, uh, my teacher would have devotions and prayer every morning, uh, even as late as sixth grade, uh, which would have been, oh, about 1966. So, 50 years ago, in, um, you know, a school district in the Canton, Ohio area, kids were still having prayer in school. I, so, I went to Christian college, but, you know, I worked in the real world and everything, and I was working on a master's and, um, uh, criminology, correctional administration. And one of the first classes I took in my graduate program was, uh, and one of the books that the professor made me read, I was a graduate assistant, he was in the office next door, you know, and he was this hip, young, pot-smoking uh, PhD, and uh, he made me read this book called Critique of, Le- of Legal Order by a guy named Quinney, Robert, I think it was Robert Quinney. And I went, it was Marxism. It was just a Marxist critique of the legal system. And I instinctively knew that this was just utter, complete nonsense. And I I went to the professor and I said, do you believe this nonsense? And he said, well, sure. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to write the answers that I need to get my A, but don't ever make me read junk like this again, because this is just absolute nonsense. And I think deep down you know it. And... He said, okay, and I, he never made me read anything like that again, but, uh, he used to think I was kind of a, uh, a dinosaur, <laughs> uh, you know, throwback <laughs> to the old days. Uh, but it, it, but look, I saw it in 19, this was 1976, 1977. I, I saw it then. And it's only, 
it's only become more in place over time. Um, I spoke at a, a church's national conference in 2001. Uh, I was out in California, and this was uh, oh, it was about uh, two about uh, seven weeks before, maybe six weeks before 9/11 happened, and I talked about the coming effect of postmodernism and and I had even then I had pastors who stopped me afterwards and were sort of pushing back at me like you know who did I think I was to talk to them like that and uh that postmodernism and this this would be a good thing for the church well I'll stand on the record 15 years later who was right uh, what's happened to the church, what's happened to culture, what's happened to education. It's only gotten progressively worse. But I think this is the world that, that the, the prophets, uh, 2000 years ago told us would be the, would be that it would be the, this would be the condition of the world when the Lord returned. It's not comfortable to live in, but it, it does help us to know that this is the way it's going to be. I think if we understand that, we can deal with that issue. But it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult. Sure, sure it is. And, and you you had um, done one of your prophecy updates, uh, actually from May 29th, as uh, as it was in the days of Noah and, and Lot. And I was watching that. And, of course, your April 10th update talking about end times fascism. All of your updates um, are just so—I I mean, so focused to, to me anyway. Uh, so keenly, um, your analyses of, of, of the current events, of geopolitical events, of domestic issues—you you take everything and you uh, you include a, just just a, 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 the, the right amount of history, as you just did here. Uh, going back to the 70s and, and, and times before, and lay lay this all out. And, you know, it, it's interesting because you brought up about the end times um, or about the times in which we live right now. Uh, I, I certainly believe we're, we're kind of in the home stretch, the end of days. The, the, we are living living in, in the prophesied times. That's what I believe. And, and I think the majority of our listeners believe that as well. Um. I'm not sure there's, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's a question in that. I guess that's just my assessment. Well, I, I, obviously I agree with you and it's, it's something that I've seen happening for a long time and sometimes I feel like, um, I say the same thing each week because I, I do, I, you know, I do look at things, I, I do try to teach on different passages of the Bible from time to time. Uh, but I also, and I've been doing this for, for probably over 15 years, <laughs> sort of the same format, you know, in, in a small, uh, class. I think we had three or four people when I started teaching it. And it did, it did grow over time, but it was, you know, sort of slow, steady growth. It wasn't spectacular growth or anything like that. But I, you know, I, I, I've always been kind of a big worldview guy that, uh, we live in the real world. I, I don't think we can be isolated from the world that we live in as much as nice as, as that would be. Uh, I mean, I'd love to go live in some nice little 
secluded uh, place, you know, as long as they had a golf course, I think that would be sort of my one requirement. And <laughs> in, 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 in indoor plumbing. And, um, uh, and I don't have a lot of, well, I'll probably frozen custard too. I, I kind of like that. But, uh, you know, uh, short of doing that, you know, we're, we live in this world and we have to uh, deal with it and we have to make sure that we have our our anchors in place, our our borders in place, and we get those from the Word of God. It, it's interesting. I I work in a largely secular office. You know, there, there's a few Christians here and there, but by and large, it's a secular office. Um, you know, decent people, but even even these people at times, I I had. Um, an attorney once um, come into my office, close the door, and say, "Is this the end of the world?" Um, wow! And I said, "Are you sh- are you sure you want to ask me that question?" <laughs> <laughs> the same thing happened uh, once on a. I used to travel about three hundred thousand miles a year by air, and so I was on an airplane all the time. And I was one on one of those ridiculous little commuter flights. And as you know, I'm a pretty big guy, you know, a little over six three and ample size. I often say I'm a two X guy in a one X world. And um, I I was working on one of my Sunday presentations, um, and I had the aisle seat, and when I have the aisle seat, and you're in the window seat on a commuter jet. You're a captive audience. And this one guy asked me, he goes, what is that that you're working on? And what's this Bible prophecy stuff? Well, he got a two-hour Bible prophecy lesson. (laughs) A couple of people uh, watching, listening in and everything uh, on the flight. I think we were coming back from the West Coast and or Florida or someplace. And maybe it was Florida. And... uh, and you know he was very interested, and he he said because he could see a lot of these things happening, but he just had never heard anything about it. That's one of the unfortunate things in the church today is that by I mean Fellowship Bible Chapel is a very unique church in that they tolerate someone who will teach and talk about this every week. Uh, they'll bring in, we'll even have little conferences. Uh, you know, a lot of the volunteers at the conference we did in Dublin, Ohio, uh, came from Fellowship Bible Chapel because the people have a real commitment to that aspect. And I, I think we try to, you know, keep it in balance. And listen, this is, I, I don't think I can make any more, um, clear my belief that we live in desperate times. Um, for example, when I talked about the days of Noah, days of Lot, Jesus said that in, in Luke chapter 17 that uh, as a Jewish person would, he laid out the pattern of what we could look for to know that, uh, what it would be like before he came back. And he said it would be as in the days of Noah. It would also be as in the days of Lot. And so I think it's important that you go and look at what was going on at that time. And for example, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, how Abraham tried to bargain with God about, you know, 
if I can find 50, you'll spare 40, 30, 20, 10. He couldn't even find 10. But it's interesting, in Second Peter chapter 2, it talks a little bit about, that's why you have to sort of look at the whole scope of Scripture. We know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but then in Second Peter chapter 2, he, Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us some additional information. And to me, it's somewhat, it's, it's troubling and comforting at the same time, because if this is the pattern, then maybe we ought to react like Peter said Lot reacted. And it says in Second Peter chapter 2, verse uh, 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and then it says, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So to me, that's a, uh, it's troubling because I don't want to feel oppressed. I don't want to feel troubled by what's going on. But it also sets out sort of a, a standard that I can sort of check myself against. Does what's going on in culture and the world bother me? If it does, then I'm like righteous lot, which is a good thing. Now, I don't want to live in that kind of world, but for some reason, God has chosen all of us to live in a world like that. And I see the thing just coming apart at the seams. And um, Now, it doesn't mean I don't go to work. It doesn't mean I still don't fulfill my obligations and that type of thing. But it's it's still very it's, – it's, it's troubling to see. I mean – my office, uh, I have a very lovely office in a building in downtown Columbus. And if you look out my window, it looks like if you could get a little bit of a head of steam up and jump out the window, you could do a swan dive right into the middle of the Ohio State Capitol building. Uh, I mean, I'm right at the center of the, the building across the street. And there's protests over there all the time. I hear, I can hear them. I'm on the 20. 24th floor, but in, even though even with the strong windows that we have, you can still hear what's the nonsense that's going on down there. <coughs> protest this, protest that. There's, I th- I think the, the Gay Pride Festival in Columbus this weekend. It there are banners all over town. It's like it's one of the biggest festivals of the year. Last year, Columbus, Ohio, that. Gay Pride Festival drew 400,000 people. 400,000? In Columbus, Ohio, Doug and Joe. 400,000 people. Yeah, we're not talking San Francisco. We're, we're talking Columbus, Ohio. Middle America. Yes. Yeah. Yes, sir. But- Okay, now is that coming up again this weekend, or was it this past weekend that you well, had another? There, there are banners up all over, and I try to get home tonight, and I usually cut across the river out to the freeway, but it was all shut down because there are booths and you know vendors and everything all along the riverfront there in Columbus. It's okay. it's just it's like any other you know like there's a big oh Oktoberfest thing that they shut down the street for. There's a big I think there's a barbecue thing that they have, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is the the Gay Pride Festival. I could be wrong, but in any event, when it happens last year, 
they announced attendance of around 400,000. Now, Man. put that in perspective, uh, the Indy 500 draws a little under 400,000, and it's the largest sporting, single day sporting event in the world. So it's, it's, so think about it. <laughs> that, <and> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's middle America. And so, uh, and, you know, and, and I saw the pictures last year. Uh, unfortunately, it seems to get a little bit cruder each year. And, um, but I, I see pictures of people bringing their little kids and children to these parades wow. that they have. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's very troubling. And so I, you know, I, uh, you know, some people are like, can you just give us some good news? And so, so here's the good news. We win in the end. Yes. Until then, it's a very troubling thing. I think that there is something extraordinary going on. I've seen it. Um, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying this to brag or anything about the, about it or not, because I look at the numbers on our YouTube channel at, at this little church in Columbus, Ohio. And I see, you know, four or five thousand people a day watching what we put up on YouTube. Uh, we've been viewed in every country in the world, usually in the top 25 countries in, of, of viewers is a country like Saudi Arabia or Indonesia. Um, I have no explanation for that. I, I don't even know these people. Uh, today I got a phone call from an old friend. Uh, by the way, you might pray for her. She's going through a really tough time in her life for what her uh, husband just passed away. Mm. I mentioned I was going to be on the Hagman and Hagman report tonight. She goes, oh, I love those guys. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, I listen to them all the time. And she lives in the mountain, um, um, you know, a mile-high city up the mountain in Ecuador. Oh, near, wow. Not too far from the Peru border. And, and, you know, and so we're, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a much smaller world in that sense. But so, uh. John, hold, hold that thought. We're up against the top of the hour network news. Folks, you're listening to, to, uh, Mr. John Haller, Fellowship Bible Chapel, fbchapel.com. That's fbchapel.com. Just an amazing man, certainly talking about, well, the days in which we live. The Lord described the days that would herald his return. And uh, we're talking about them right now, folks. Stay with us. Going to be back right after this. This is the Global Star Radio Network. You may never look at any town or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood, a murder investigation based upon a true story by private investigator Douglas J. Hagman. Using the character Mark Stiles, Hagman takes you on a journey behind the scenes where the homicide becomes a secondary to an underworld of satanic ritual abuse, child abduction, and even mind-controlled experimentation. A world dismissed as conspiracy by those who want to keep its secrets hidden, exposing the dangers, denials, and deceptions. For five years, a brutal killer remained on the loose, free to kill again. As Mark struggles to navigate the maze of bizarre twists and untangle a web of deeply hidden secrets kept by some of the most powerful and influential people in his community and beyond, you may never look at your city, town, or its people the same way ever again. Stained by Blood. Order your copy of this engaging novel today at HagmanandHagman.com and click on the link. Stain by Blood.
back, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode, this Breaking news is our from portion. Oh, here we go with news now. <laughs> All right. We're Thanks, okay. Dad. Thanks, Thanks man. Anyway, folks, we're sorry about that. Our, our regular tech, Eric the Tech, is is out for a couple of days. We've got Josh sitting and doing the best he can. We have something called the Mayday Manual, and, and that's kind of like as you're you're crashing in a in a uh, seven fifty seven. You know, you, you you pull this manual out and then kind of run down a checklist. But um, yeah, things happen. So you know what? We just roll with it. It's uh, no one said that we're you know professional broadcasters, although we do play professional broadcasters on TV. Uh, our, our program tonight, we are so blessed to be joined by uh, Mr. John Haller, who we met in Dublin, Ohio, and had a great, just a great time. He, he was a, a most engaging speaker in Dublin at the Prophecy Conference there in, I think it was uh, October, yeah, November, late 2014. November, I believe, yeah. Yeah, and of course, he's an elder with the Fellowship Bible Chapel. His fbchapel.com. That's right, thank you. And his prophecy updates are on YouTube. And I would urge everyone to uh, go to fbchapel.com, and from there you can access his YouTube channel. Subscribe, and you can access his prophecy updates. you got to listen and watch. I mean, they're fascinating. He does a wonderful job. You know, I, I was watching him, and, and I sat back and I was thinking, I wish I, I, wish I would have said that. Um, but he provides a lot of topical information and provides his assessment with respect to what's taking place today. That's fbchapel.com, Fellowship Bible Chapel, fbchapel.com. And he's got a YouTube channel. He's also got a Facebook page as well. And um, follow him on Facebook and and, uh, 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 watch his timeline. Again, many important contributions and news items on uh, uh, fbchapel.com. And, of course, by profession, John Haller is a trial attorney. And that, to me, he's been he's been, he's been practicing since uh, 1980. And I, I can't remember if I said this publicly or not, but a wonderful picture of um, of of he and his wife on Facebook, just married back in the late 70s. Of course, um, I, I've worn hey, I've worn a tux like that. Uh, but if you have a chance, go to go to his photo album. You can see. You can see his picture of him and his wife, 41 years together. He and his wife, Pam, living in Columbus, the Columbus area. Congratulations. And it, it shows you what kind of, what kind of man, uh, uh, John Heller is, uh, both, uh, pers- personally and professionally. But we're, 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 we're so lucky to have him on tonight. And, uh, we were talking right before the top of the hour about the days of Noah, about the times in which we live. And of course, there we are. And by the way, John, the, um, the Pride, Columbus Pride 2016 festival dates, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, 17th through the 19th of June, just as an FYI, so you might want to modify yeah. your bridge travels there. But uh, Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, are you hearing me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, um, um, yeah I, I did look it up over the time, and I, I looked. It, it started in 1981. They had 200 people in attendance. And, uh, the last, the most recent announced attendance I could find was, uh, two or three years ago. They, uh, said it was over 300,000. Uh, it's just a stunning number to me, uh, in Columbus. But I think that the point I was getting ready to make, uh, when we went to the break was this, is that the interesting thing that I see happening, um, I think I see it through, uh, shows like yours, 
other uh, radio podcasts, uh, Facebook groups. I what I what I see I see a couple of things. I see that the uh, faithful remnant of the church is sort of finding out who the other faithful remnant people are in the church. And I think that's an extraordinary time because, you know, we're going to have, <coughs> if if the prophetic scriptures are correct, there's some tough times ahead. Uh, there's some tough sledding. And we're really going to need, uh, we're going to need each other during that period of time. The other thing I see happening, though, too, is as we look at what's going on in the world geopolitically, uh, what's going on in Europe with this immigration crisis, with uh, <coughs> what's going on in America with our immigration crisis, for crying out loud, uh, with a president who seems to be a constitutional wrecking ball. <laughs> I, I don't know how yeah. to describe it. I mean, um, well, I'll talk, but what I see is I, I see the people of God are sort of <clears throat> decoupling themselves from the world system and realizing that, you know, really God, the full dependence on God is our only hope. And so it's kind of an interesting thing to watch happen. And I, I do see it happening because, you know, I know that you do, I know that I do, I know that uh, other people who uh, speak on these topics when we get together, we talk about the fact that, you know, we all get the same kind of emails. We get these emails from people like, what is going on? I don't understand what's going on. The world doesn't make sense anymore. This is not the world. Like, how did this happen? Very much. I, I don't feel like I'm part of the world anymore. And I think that in some respects that as troubling as that is, that's really a God thing because God is decoupling us from the world and making us dependent on him and I think that's I think that's a good thing ultimately. Well, you know, I, I agree. I agree with that. But but John, and maybe you can help me out with this because I struggle with this um as Christians and, and I know I mean, I I understand and, and you painted a really a good picture of 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 your profession, what you do, you're in, a, you're in an office, a high rise. You're in the legal profession. You're around secular people, and of course, you get that. You get the, um, the the people who are beginning to awaken. But but now, if I can just back up a moment here, and maybe you can help help me out with this, because I get so frustrated with Christians. And and um, and I have to repent, you know, because I, I because of my frustration level. And, and here's what it is: uh, I, I as you do, I believe that we are all appointed to be alive at this time, and I believe that we all have a mission that we have been given, a divine mission a, a, to to serve God as Christians, and we have a specific. Well, we have, uh, although we didn't. I mean, we have to search what our what our mission is. But my question is this: um, We see so many, or at least I do. I see so many Christians who are saying, "Well, it really doesn't matter. The presidential elections don't matter. Um, we're we're um, we're not of this world." Okay, uh, or another one: uh, I'm just going to vote for Jesus in in in, the, in this election. I'm not sure how how you you know one can do that, but okay. 
um, we shouldn't concern ourselves with things of this world. There, there, I understand the reliance on God, the necessity to rely on God. I understand that. But what I don't understand is this deliberate disassociation where Christians seem to be kind of throwing up their hands and saying, I'm done. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna involve myself in things of the world. Are you seeing that? And if you are, what's the, how do you handle that? Yeah, well, you know, as, um, I'm tempted to do the same. I mean, it, the temptation is to do the same thing. You know, I'm just gonna put my head down. I'm gonna, uh, find a nice little place away from everywhere and I'm just gonna not do anything. I, I don't, I just, I don't think that that's a healthy response. You know, I, I think it's a question of balance. Um, do we, how involved do we get? Can I, maybe this is a good point. Uh, this is something we talked about, uh, in the, um, uh, when we were discussing, uh, doing this. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to pull up a passage because I think, you know, I, I wrestle with this too. And, So I I really try to, as much as possible, look for scriptural examples as to how I should act. And I really think that the prophet Daniel is a very good example. First of all, Daniel was one of um, the best examples of a human uh, that has ever lived. He lived in Babylon, for crying out loud. He was in the midst of the great world empire that um, God used to judge the Jewish people, but also was <coughs> evil itself. I mean, they had defeated the Assyrians, who were hardly... Uh, if you think of the Assyrians, if you think of the uh, an ancient version of ISIS, uh, you would have a pretty good picture, and Babylon beat them. Uh, but it, here was Daniel in that culture, in that secular, pagan, wicked culture, and he became one of the leaders of the government and that a very important person in the government of that culture. It never affected his faith. It never affected his action. And so I, I think he's a good example of, of someone to follow because he was engaged. He was there. <clears throat> he, he knew the promises of God that the uh, the judgment on the Jewish people uh, being carried away in the captivity were, was only going to last for a period of time. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, which is the passage where at the end of the chapter we get that great prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, um, most of us, a lot of us believe that there's still one week of that, one week of years, seven years that needs to play out at some point in human history and at the end Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom but Daniel's in Babylon and he's reading the book of Jeremiah the prophet so first of all we know he was in the scripture uh, he's he's not in his home country he's been carried away you know hundreds say a thousand miles from his home across the desert to a pagan culture and so he's reading the scripture, and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah in Daniel chapter 9, and it says that he gets to the place where it says that the captivity of the people or the desolations of Jerusalem will last for 70 years. And Daniel has a great response to that. It's not 
all right, I'm going home and have a party. You know, <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, everything's going to work out great for me. It's over. I don't have to do anything more here in Babylon. I can just go back to Israel and and live out my my days. Now, there's no indication that he ever went back to Israel, by the way. But that was not his response. His response was he got on his he got on his face in prayer, sack, fasting sackcloth and ashes, and prayed to the Lord and confessed. He confessed how great God was and how God was working this all out, how the his people had sinned and brought on them the judgment of God, and he repented. And so I, I think sometimes, I, I think I mentioned this last Sunday at the end of my talk, uh, it's just, you know, this, this passage in Daniel chapter 9 has had a, a big impact on me in my own attitude towards these things about um, staying engaged. Um, I think that's a, a matter that's kind of up to everyone's conscience, but I don't think we should... Uh, withdraw and go to a mountaintop. I think we need to stay engaged because we will be salt and light in the culture. Um, if you, I was talking to a, a lady this week who writes a lot of, uh, good, um, articles on her blog and we were kind of talking about maybe a good title for her. Um, she was looking at this, uh, this thing that happened at the, the Gothard Tunnel. In Switzerland, the dedication of this thing. Yeah. I know you saw it. To say that it was bizarre, that's the best thing you can <laughs> say about it. It was bizarre. Yeah. It was, it was demonic. It was satanic. It was disturbing on a huge, I mean, I have had so many, resp- I played a little bit of it in my update last week. So many people respond to me like, what, what is going on? I mean, <coughs> they don't even hide this stuff. Anymore, That's I mean, right. there you have the uh, you have the evil, the Eye of Horus. You have the uh, uh, Baphomet. I mean, it, it just it was just in your face, and and we were talking about that. And she said, "I'm gonna write an article about that." And I said, "Well, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> sorry about that. Why don't you title it? Europe has lost its salt." Uh, because there is effectively no church in Europe anymore to to act as a salt and preservative in the culture. It, right. By every estimate, it's, it's gone. And where we used to think that America would would stand up to that because America had kind of a rich church tradition, along with other, all the other baggage. But you know, there were a lot of church people, Christians in America. The, the decline of America has been um, at breakneck speed. Yes, Europe. It took decades. <laughs> America, it's 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 going in in much less time, half the time, if not less than that. And it, so this is where we are. So Daniel Daniel does the right response. I think the response a Christian should have is he stays engaged, he stays in the Word, he stays in prayer, he stays in an attitude of repentance, and essentially he says, "Look, God, um, fulfill your prophecy." Essentially, I'll paraphrase it: 
fulfill your prophecy just as you said to your glory and sometimes we as Christians we we kind of get this attitude and, and look when I say this every finger is pointing right back at me because I'm this way too it's like I look at eschatology sometimes like okay what do I get out of it well I get a crown of righteousness I get a, to go to heaven I get to be in the new Jerusalem the millennial kingdom I get raptured whatever it is it, it works out pretty good for me but I think sometimes we, I think we, um, I've just been kind of convicted about that attitude that I've had lately and that I see in a lot of other people too, that maybe we need to be thinking more about, um, how all of this unfolding ultimately is done to God's glory because it plays out just as he's predicted, just as he had his prophets predict 2000 or more years ago. And so, I, it's just, um, it's just something that I've been thinking about. As we have as, we, as well, it seems like we're, we're um, and I, if my terminology is incorrect, I apologize, but it seems like there is a remnant, a, a, a Christian, a body of Christians who, who have, a, a, and I want to be careful how I say this because I, I certainly don't want to be offensive to anyone. But um, I, I, I see that there's this body of Christians, what I would call like a remnant, who are, are who have additional increased insight into events taking place and are above the fray. And then there's a fray that's going on um, within the body. That's dividing the church like never before, dividing the, the the body of believers like never before. I mean, it's it's almost as if we have um, this infiltration into the churches, the body of the church, uh, this infiltration of the spirit of divisiveness. And Christians are fair game, not just by other others outside of the the body, but by people from within the body. And it, it it saddens me to see this divisiveness. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's a certain thing too. There is a, uh, and I I spend probably more maybe more time about this than any other topic is talking about uh, the decline in the church. Um, you know, I've had to in my own personal life essentially uh, break with people that I had. Um, a long time, lifelong association with over some issues of concern that I just didn't think were being addressed. So on the one hand, um, and, and, you know, maybe I didn't raise those issues in the best way, but then on the other hand, too, people weren't humble enough to admit that maybe, uh, they were wrong about something. And so it, there's a balance that we have to achieve. We, we all have to be, committed to truth and um, exercising that in a that commitment in a loving way but then we also all need to be humble enough that when we are corrected we can say you know I probably didn't I probably didn't have that one quite right and I shouldn't have done that and I'm sorry and I'll, I'll try not to do it again and usually you know th- those those kinds of that humbleness will uh, will will work us will will do us well. You know, remember you you guys um, moderated a panel that I was on with uh, Doug Krieger, Bill Salas, and Chris Putnam 
on premillennialism, and as you as you recall, it it kind of quickly devolved into a debate a little bit, well, a lot about the timing of the rapture, which uh, that seems to be one of those things that uh, really leads to a lot of contentious arguments. Now, my response to all of that was, you know, that I really do love everybody. Um, I love my pre-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath brethren. We all agree we're going to be raptured. Uh, we all agree that it happens before the wrath of God. And we all agree about a millennial kingdom. We just disagree a little bit on, you know, we might differ anywhere from a few years to, to weeks over the, the timing of that. It's become an incredibly divisive issue. And I think I said in that panel, I, I think it's up on YouTube someplace by this time, you know, we all need to be humble enough. Right, right now, everybody can claim my view of the timing of the rapture is correct. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. But it's, someday it'll happen, <laughs> or not happen as you plan. And people are going to have to eat some humble pie and be willing to admit that, you know, I didn't quite have that right. Uh, now, how are we going to work through this together as a body of believers? Um, you know, and if, it's, if it turns out to be a pre-trib rapture, I think we're all going, and We'll be in heaven, and it'll be pretty easy to forgive everybody. But if it's not a pre-trib rapture, then there's going to be a lot of really difficult work to do uh, in to unifying the body. So I, I guess I would just encourage people to try to to build towards that unity now before it's easier to do it now than it is. It will be under extreme duress and stress if it turns out not to be a pre-trib rapture. Exactly, and, and you know what, John, I, I've noticed that even. I mean, beyond the rapture debate, um, even we, we have Christians that are um, actively acting as the accusers of the brethren. You know, he, he, I just use I'll just use one example. Look, Joe and I are, are not ministers. We're not pastors. We're not preachers. We're the furthest thing from that, especially me. Okay, I'm 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 none of that. Um. We're just a couple of guys trying to do our best to make sense or understand current events through biblical prophecy and through the scriptures. So we're, we're, we are going to error. We're, we're going to make mistakes. And that, that, that's a given. And then we're going to be off on certain things. But what, what bothers me, especially today, we've got this enemy or these enemies. We've got, uh, the, the Islamic faction. You've got big government. You've got the tyranny of big government. You've got all of these external threats. And during this period, um, of, of, of everybody coming down on Christians and on Jews as well, the Judeo-Christian, um, heritage and belief system, there's a lot of infighting. We're not focusing our efforts and attentions against the common enemies. We're going, we're eating our, eating one another, and we've got to stop that, you know? So that bothers me a lot. Um, yeah, and it, again, it's, a, it's an issue of balance, too, because, um, as I said, I uh, had to break kind of fellowship over, and, you know, I, I see this with this, um, Sometimes, though, Doug, there's a, there's kind of a tolerance of, of, uh, things that, that shouldn't be tolerated. You know, we should, um, I'm trying to think. One of the issues that was a big deal for me and my departure from 
certain institutions was a thing called spiritual formation. And in the spiritual formation movement, what has happened is that there's been a big introduction of kind of this mix of mysticism, psychology, and that type of thing, which I think, you know, we, we need to really be on our guards against this apostasy that's, that's not coming. It, it's coming in a bigger way, but it's already here in a big way in the church. And it's this, you know, it's the Laodicean thing. It's this mixture of, of good and bad. And so we always, we always, so while we, we can't be, uh, too harsh, we also can't tolerate this, this mixture thing because that, you know, the reaction of Jesus to the Laodicean church where there was this mixture tolerated was he, he vomited it. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth because you're, you're disgusting to me. So we need to kind of, we also need to be on guard against the apostasy. So it's kind of a, I agree. It's yep. a, it's a two way, it's a two way street. And, and I do see it. And, uh, but I do see, uh, you know, f- from my own standpoint, I, I look at some of the, the mega church movements and this introduction of mysticism, this unification with the Roman Catholic system, which, I don't consider Christian. I consider it, you know, they claim to be Christian, but they don't follow the true gospel. And that's a, that's a big deal for me. You know, it has been a big deal for me ever since I was a kid. I, look, my father, um, the, the fellowship that he was a pastor in, he was the moderator, was, you know, sort of a head of the conference. And it's something you can be elected to twice in life. So when I was 16, he was the moderator of the national conference. And I recently found online his moderator's address from 1970. It was delivered in Long Beach, California. And I don't know that I, I didn't, I was at the youth conference, so I, I don't think I heard it. Uh, I don't even know that I read it until, you know, five or six months ago. And you, the amazing thing was, it sounded like something that I say almost every week. So maybe I was paying attention uh, in church back in those days. But I I was blessed to have very discerning parents. Uh, when I grew up as a kid, we lived on a, a little street in Middle Branch, Ohio. There were five houses on one side of the street. There were two churches on the other side of the street. There was a Grace Brethren Church and a cat, Little Flower Catholic Church. And our house was in the middle of the five houses. And the people in the other houses all had names that ended in a vowel. Uh, so you know where they went to church. They went to the, they were all Italian. And, I mean, you could walk outside, you could smell the garlic in the, coming from the kitchens <laughs> next door. <laughs> and, and great people, but I, I, I saw what was going on over there. Because I could look in and I could see the priests, you know, in the morning at the door, the front doors of the church were open offering mass and everything. And I just thought, that's not, that's not right. And I remember thinking this when I'm like six, seven years old. Um, so I've always been concerned about that. So I, I do think we have to watch out for the, the tolerance of the, the wrong religion. Uh, yeah, I agree. So it, it's a balance, and it, and it, it's a hard balance to strike. And we're we're humans, and we'll be imperfect the way we do it. And and I know the people that that offer up the correction often do it with 
um, the best, you know, they do it with good motives and it, it but it's, it's easy to, when, and look, I read the comments on my YouTube channel, you know, and I delete a lot of them. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I do, I because I'm just, you know, I, I just, uh, um, I, I spent a lot of time putting those things together and, um, and people are prone to offer their opinions, uh, wrong as they may be. So sometimes I just, I just delete the things because I, I just, uh, they're, boy, they're hurtful. I mean, they're just absolutely hurtful. Well, like, why didn't you say this, you know, you idiot? And I'm like, well, you know, you do public speaking each week and see if everything you say comes out perfect. So, Exactly. So there's a there's a balance there, Doug. You know that yeah. we have to yeah, be willing yeah. to accept the correction, but we also and but, but we should but, also offer it up. And in and in sometimes we don't do a good job in the way it's offered up. Well, that kind of segues into into uh, I really want to get your take um, again before you, your appearance tonight. Joe and I were talking. Well, you know what, what do we see? What do you see as really the most important issues here? Um, if if this were uh, actually Joe and I were, were were kind of saying if this were a trial if this was a, a case that you were litigating given your profession um, uh, if, if you were well if you were offering up evidence of um, uh, of a conspiracy or well I'm sorry go ahead well or that we live in those times that the prophets yeah talk. yeah I, I mean uh, what would you say to a jury you know, to to say, look, here's the evidence. Here, to to twelve or however many reasonable people, here's the evidence. And, and you know, you how would you make your case? What would you use? What elements specific to the times in which we live would you would you pull? And of course, I, I think I know the answer, having watched all you know most, if not all, of your prophecy updates uh, for the year. But but. Uh, I mean the acceleration of events right now that we're, that we've seen. But yeah. what would you, you know, how, how would you lay it out for a jury? Well, I think the first thing that I w- would focus on is there are uh, different <coughs> sort of broad, overarching concepts or, or teachings or uh, indicators of the end times. Uh, so the first one I'll talk about, which is the one that that seems to be most troubling to me. Maybe because, you know, I grew up in the church. Um, I grew up in a, bi- a great Bible-believing fellowship, but one of the things that concerns me that I've seen in uh, across even the evangelical church is a growth of apostasy. And when I look at that, I my my personal uh, test for apostasy, the falling away from the faith. I, I try to boil it down. I, I kind of have three quick things that I look at, if I could just share those. One is, it, all of them attack sufficiency in one way. For example, if people are adding works to the gospel, you have to act a certain way or you're not saved, that's attacking the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. Um, and, and so that's that's one way you see apostasy. Does this attack the work of Christ? Uh, does it attack the sufficiency of the Word of God? You know, we have to add in 
uh, this, um, I'm trying to think of an example, in, in spiritual formation and the mysticism part, they, they bring in elements of Eastern mysticism like Hinduism and that type of thing and say, well, we'll just add a little bit of that because, you know, the word of God just isn't quite sufficient enough. <clears throat> and then there's also an attack on the sufficiency of the work of the Holy Spirit, which I think is a something that a lot of times is not thought about a lot by Christians. But, for example, spiritual formation, they'll bring in psychology like, yeah, you know, Scripture's not adequate, the work of the Holy Spirit's not adequate, we need to add in all these man-made philosophies and things like this to make us better, to make us more, to sanctify us. And so those, when, when those get off, the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the Word of God, the sufficiency of the work of the Holy Spirit, I think you're well down the road to apostasy. So that to me is the biggest indicator of the end times. In fact, if you look in Matthew chapter 24, you know, Jesus talks about various signs and indicators of the end times, earthquakes, famines, you know, he goes, there's a whole list there. But for every time he mentions one of those, four times more, four times he mentions deception. Take heed that no one deceive you. Don't be deceived. And so that, that to me is, that is to me the, uh, the big issue. The fact that many Christians are being deceived. For, for crying out loud, we have churches, colleges, and whatever that are doing Christian yoga. I mean, really, that's an oxymoron. There is no Christian yoga. And it's a, it's an introduction of Hindu mysticism and teaching into the, into the church. And it's not coming in through the back door, it's coming in through, you know, the front door and, and people are tolerating it. <coughs> so that would be number one is apostasy. Uh, number two would be the general decline in the morality of culture. The days of Noah, days of Lot, and I, I personally, I don't talk a lot about, um, you know, the issue of Nephilim and and that type of thing because it's just not something I've spent a lot of time studying, and it's a controversial issue that I just, you know, it's just not, it's not my thing. So, but I do see the the morality indicators of the days of Noah, days of Lot manifesting themselves in culture and now man Joe and Doug I mean yeah, a local United Methodist minister married his boyfriend yeah and yeah. has he been defrocked no 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 and the local bishop when he's confronted about it, he goes well you know there, it's just I don't want to really divide over it this is one that you should divide over Yes, this, I agree. <laughs> and so this is one, and but but we tolerate it. And there there are big churches, mega churches. They're small churches, but some of these big churches, they don't they don't talk about it. They look. I know at Fellowship Bible Chapel, Obergefell came down. We talked about it the next Sunday. You know, mm. what does this mean? What what's the impact of it? Are some things happen like this, and Pastor Steve Mitchell in our church, he'll, you know, 
set aside what he was going to do, and he'll talk about that particular issue because it it's an important issue. Look, this happened in the time of Jesus. When when people came to Jesus about things, sometimes while there weren't newspapers in uh, first century uh, Israel, Judea, Samaria, there were there was. Uh, there was news. There were things happening. Remember, there's a story about the tower that fell. Uh, there's also the, they come to him and they say, they were asking him questions about Herod. Should he have his, uh, should he have married this person? And so, you know, they were essentially taking the headlines from the local newspaper or what everybody was talking about and trying to talk to Jesus about it. So I, I think we need to talk about the things that are happening in the world around us. Um, but this decline in the moral state of culture, um, it's, it's hard. I, I think the facts of what's happening are so clear that, you, you know, yeah. you, you had a, um, in one of your, in the, uh, June 5th, um, prophecy update, in speaking to this, you had a, clip of, of a film a video clip of um, a congressman uh, Lofgren I believe it was yeah, dressing down right d- dressing down and uh, it, it was one of the most horrendous uh, um, I, I can't even find the correct adjectives to describe this it's about folks it's about 17 minutes in on uh, John Haller's prophecy update uh, chessboard from 6-5 of 16. But talking about this issue, and um, uh, I, I don't know, this Lofgren was uh, talking about or talking to a witness, and of course she was stating facts, and Lofgren just went off and uh, t- talk, talking about the, or talk about being contemptible in, in in a contempt situation, it, it, it's just amazing, and of course, the well that with respect to the New York City uh, um, gender identity, the, 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 uh, 31, 31 yeah. categories of gender. Right, God, right. God made them male and female, but we've evolved to where there are thirty one category. I mean, it's it's not just LGBTQ now. It's LGBTQIA plus sign <laughs> NB for. I heard this one recently. Non-binary. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, yes. The gal. It, it was in. Uh, I think it was when Obama was over in England. She said, "I'm a non non-binary human," and I'm like, "What? What is that?" I, I mean, it was a new one for me, and I try to I try to stay up on these things. I listen. Uh, this kind of goes into one of the next things that I think to make the case on is I, I titled one of my things. I think you said back in April, end time fascism. Christians are being marginalized. I I got a call. Uh, from a wonderful lady today, uh, who's concerned about what's going on in the, the place where she works, uh, state government in another, in another state, and how her taking a stand on these issues and maybe expressing her opinion about 
the fact that they're just plain crazy uh, isn't she's concerned she's going to lose her job she's concerned and and people have lost their jobs uh, there was the case last year of the guy who was uh, I think the director of public health at Pasadena, California and he was supposed to speak at Pasadena City College and he was disinvited from speaking at the school where he was an alumni because why? because he in his role as a Seventh Day Adventist minister had preached sermons saying the Bible condemned homosexuality as a sin he eventually resigned Pasadena. He moved to Georgia, and he worked there for a while, and I don't know if he was on probation or what. They fired him. They fired him because they found out that he was still speaking about this, and this does not fit in government today. Now, this this is fascism. Uh, I think I mentioned it last week. The uh, Well, if you go back to the to the Brussels terrorist attacks there was a commission that was appointed to study those attacks they issued a report on March 22nd in that report buried in that report is a statement that by June of 2016 we will issue guidelines with regard to hate speech now what now I know that they they brought it under the guise that well we have terrorism and they're using this hate speech Online to recruit people for um, to to do these things, to go to join ISIS, to become terrorists and whatnot. They they never, by the way, they never look at the ideology behind all of this. It's it's always well, they're just not doing things quite the right way. The the fact that this can't be talked about in an open, honest, direct way is just absolutely stunning to me. It's it's totally buried by the media. It's it's glossed over. Um, it's it's just stunning. But but now Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Microsoft have entered into an agreement with the EU to monitor hate speech. If they see hate speech on their sites, they'll take it down. Um, do, do, you, do you see a time, uh, especially given your uh, given your station as an attorney? Uh, a trial lawyer. Do you see a time when Christians here in America are, are going to be um, either criminally charged or civilly sanctioned for, um, you know, well, I guess we're seeing it now in, in New York City um, to, to some extent, but on a national level, where programs like this, we will be subject to censorship and, and fines and, and potential criminal uh, actions. Do you see that coming pretty quick? Well, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have I would have thought, and I still think to some extent that there's still a fairly strong commitment to free speech among a large portion of Americans. I think it's probably still a majority, but the people in control don't see it that way. They don't, they don't have the same view of the First Amendment that you or I do. They certainly don't have a view of the First Amendment's protection of the free exercise of religion. Uh, they're, you know, that, that they'll sacrifice for anything for political correctness. So I, I do think it's coming. I don't know how effective it will be here. I know that there will be these attempts, but look, it, 
more as much as government control, I'm concerned about corporate control as well. Mm. And, and look at what's happened with the EU. They they don't they don't really enact. Well, they do have some laws, but what they did was they went to the corporations, and they're going to get the corporations to enforce this. The corporations that are probably the biggest speech forums that people have these days, and they're going to get them to shut down what is not politically correct speech. And they'll, look, they'll say it's hate speech. Quite, you know, who defines what hate speech is? <coughs> you know, hate speech is whatever you hear on the Hagman report. That's what they'll right, right. They'll say, and so I mean, look, look at my own life. Okay, you know, I'm 62. Um, I've had people ask, well, why don't you become a judge? Now, after this interview tonight, (laughs) can you you imagine me going to a a congressional hearing to get approved as a judge in a U.S. district court or a court of appeals? (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen in this, in this culture that we have. Right. Um, and look, I, how this affects me is I don't know. Um, I do know I have friends who are involved in, in large banks that are being asked each year to not, not just agree with or, or, or not speak out against a, let's, let's call it the LGBTQ agenda. And they do have an agenda. It's, it's, it's clear they do. Sure. Not just speak out against it, but to affirmatively Go, you have to take affirmative action to go along in your own life and the way you act to support their agenda. The, these kind of codes are working their way into corporate America. People, people that, that take a stand, I, I think, well they already are in, in a few cases losing their jobs. Yeah. And, and what's going to happen is this, so, Facebook. We've we've lost sponsors. Okay, we've lost sponsors um, because of our position and unwavering. Look, last I think it was last summer. I don't know, Joe. It was it was a while ago. Uh, we stood up and said, "Look, we're not going to um, alter our position on this issue, meaning the the uh, sodomy issue, um, and we're not going to certainly not going to um, promote a company who promotes." And, and who filed a uh, amicus brief uh, um, uh, uh, for a the a Burgerfell decision or case, uh, and we I mean it costs us a lot of money, but but nonetheless, I guess I mentioned that just to say this that that we we have felt the economic impact from our positions, and I think that a lot of companies from bakers to florists to well. To, to many people in the corporate right. world, yeah. So, so you're right. It's a corporate uh, issue as well. Huge. Yeah, and i I think it's I think it's coming. Like like I said, I've I've probably uh, effectively disqualified myself um, from certain certain things just because of the stance. And look, there's plenty of tapes of me out there. Uh, speaking my mind about things, trying to put it into a biblical context, and that's that's not politically correct. So, I, look, I, I'm, um, but I, I think it's going to happen. I know that 
you know, at Fellowship Bible Chapel, we are uh, already sort of putting things into some alternative platforms that uh, could be used instead of YouTube in the event that we get taken down. Yeah, so are uh, we. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I think it would be great if some Christian technology people that, that know this much better than I do developed a Christian alternative to Facebook. You know, I, I do like Facebook in, in the sense that you can interact with a lot of different people, even non-Christians. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell who's who, um, with the way <laughs> that this, right. it's like, you know, it's like, uh, oh my goodness, you know, some, some days it's just so contentious and, uh, and I'll admit, I, I'll tell people, listen, you, you're, you're spreading, this is just nonsense. You're just, you're, I'm afraid you're deceived, uh, now you're deceiving other people. And, you know, I'm not afraid to say that, and I, I try to, you know, sometimes I just re- I reach my limit, and I just have to kind of, you know, put down the keyboard and step away from the computer, uh, and, and go cool off, because, you know, sometimes, um, well, I, I could, I have no particular judge in mind when I say this, uh, but, you know, sometimes it's very, it's very frustrating to try to persuade a judge who's made up his mind. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to keep a cool head about you, uh, uh, when you do that. And, uh, you know, I, uh. Yes. I, I, I got, I gotta ask. Well, and if this is out of line, Please tell me. Have you ever been held in contempt? <laughs> I have not. I have not. Okay. I probably, I was in a, a pretrial conference with a judge once, and he kind of uh, jumped in my face, and I kind of jumped right back. Um, gotcha. And I had my partner yell at me, a partner yell at me later uh, for doing that, but... Doggone it! He was wrong, and I was right. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I understand that. Yeah, if he just he just didn't realize how right I was. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, we I mean, we, we've only got the. <laughs> I, I love it, man. I, I could talk to you for for forever. I mean, this is fantastic. What an incredible insight of the man behind the prophecy updates. Really, kind of a, a heartfelt, spirit-led discussion, uh, sitting around the conference table, shall we say, or even in the courtroom here, talking about current events and uh, about some tough subjects. I mean, you know, we've got about uh, I don't know about two minutes left of the program already, and it went by really quick for me. Um, but but just to just to get to you know just to get to know you uh, a little bit and to you know to hear. The man, again, the man behind the teachings, the man behind the prophecy updates, the man really... Um, and your, your insight yeah. on, on so many things that are going on in our world. It has been a, a pleasure and a blessing. And Mr. Haller, we thank you for coming sure. on. Um, wow, yeah. And we will stay in touch. And sure. again, people, the uh, website for John is uh, fellowshipbiblechapel, fbchapel.com. Yeah. 
from there you can get all the YouTube, Facebook, and social media links. And subscribe to his YouTube channel. Absolutely. And start watching some of the videos. They're very informative. Yeah. You, you really have a great handle on, on things, and I, and I love how... I love I love your present, manner presentation, which... No BS. No no creepy music or whatever. It's just laying it all out as if you were in front of a jury. You do a great job. Well, I appreciate as, as that. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be on here tonight, and let's keep in touch, and... uh uh, maybe the next time, if we, if there is a next time, we can talk about geopolitics sure. a little bit. That's the other yeah. thing that we didn't get to tonight. Yes, I, we, I'd love that. And, and for those jonesing, uh, uh, to use an urban slang there, for information about geopolitics, I mean, we went where the spirit led us tonight, but for, uh, check out, uh, 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 John Haller's prophecy update and especially his last couple especially the chessboard very interesting and very pertinent uh john thank you so much thanks guys god bless god bless have a great night that was that's it for us tonight tomorrow we will be with uh dr ted broyer for the show uh healthmasters.com yeah healthmasters.com also has a show here on global star radio network and again want to thank john haller in Fellowship Bible Chapel, where he resides. And we'll be back tomorrow. Have a safe and wonderful evening. And thanks, everyone, for listening to this program. We we love you all. God bless. This is the Global Star Radio Network.